folks, it's Brian here. Um, we started recording the podcast, and we said, we'll record a little intro at the end, and then we talked for three hours, and that never got done. So here I am, a couple days later, in front of my office. It's a beautiful day, and I'm recording the intro to the podcast. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We have a great guest on this week. We have Steve Orlando, writer of Midnighter, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking with him in just a minute. And then we have a ton of of uh, discussion between the three of us about all sorts of things going on in D.C. So strap in. This will probably be a podcast you might want to listen to in like three parts because it's, uh, it's longer than most feature films. It's probably longer than any Marvel movie. might even be longer than the Nolan Batman movies. It's a long, it's a long podcast, but uh, we had fun doing it. Hopefully you have fun listening. Steve, why don't you talk us through? All of us here are really interested in uh, sort of this. This you're part of this new batch of DC creators that seemingly is coming in and doing these books that a couple of years ago would have seemed completely in- inconceivable from coming out from DC, and we're all so thrilled about it. So let's talk initially about sort of how you came to be writing for DC. Did they approach you? Were you pitching to them? How did your association with the company come about? Well, you know, I mean, the the story of me coming to D.C., tale as old as time. Uh, no, it's... It, it, uh, the... The confluence of events that had to happen, you know, it's, it's always like, with comics, it's always like 50% work and 50% right place, right time. And so, you know, I have known... Uh, you know, Will Bennis and Mark Doyle at DC since I was 14 in the case of Will and you know, for a long time in the case of Mark, so more than half my life. And, you know, even with that and working and trying to get into comics for that long, it still took until 2012 for there to be, like, a time when they could actually, like, find a way to work with me. So, uh, you know, if you, people may remember, they may not remember, but that year at Vertigo did a Mystery in Space anthology and I was in it and I had a story about centaurs taking drugs and uh, hallucinating their way through puberty and sex as gladiator battle between their human self and their horse self so that was something and uh, I did that and the editor in that was a young and nubile uh, assistant uh, editor by the name of Mark Doyle and so uh, the first thing I did at DC at Vertigo was something that Mark edited and then you know, time passed, and he moved over to the Batman office, and I did another strange story at Vertigo, and at that point, I'd done these two things. I was in the New York offices uh, to talk about them and to see what was going on, and as it happened, Mark gave me a call and said, why don't you come down to uh, to the DPU floor, which I had never done before. And this was right after the announcement of the new Batgirl, and everybody really liked, uh, you know, what they were seeing with that. So, you know, he said, you know, what what would you do, uh, you know, if if you could do any book at D.C., what would you do? And uh, Midnighter is what came up. It's now like they said, oh, we're doing a Midnighter book. Um, uh, it's, it's just, it's, a, it's the first thing that popped into my head because it's, it's one of those characters that if you knew me 10 years ago, I was sitting at 3 a.m. in a Denny's on, like, my 17th cup of free coffee, like, touching about what I would do if I had Midnighters, so if I was writing The Authority or working with Midnighter Apollo. So, you know, you should never, like, leave something in the, leave something in the quiver. So when you ask what I would like to work on, 
I was like Midnighter and Prince Rahman, and he was like, okay, Prince Rahman is not a character anyone in the world cares about, so how about Midnighter? <laughs> and uh, that, 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 that's how it all began. That's pretty incredible that the character that you were sitting in a Denny's obsessing over is now the character you're writing. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank you. No, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. And obviously, like, uh, there was a pitch process after, and I had to convince them, like, why it wasn't totally crazy to let me work in the character. But, like, that is also the classic sort of comics without getting into it too much. Everybody says, oh, well, how do you break in the comics? Well, there are always outlier stories, but the fact is, is that, like, it is about, it is about knowing people and working to meet people and, you know, connections get you the shot and then not, you know, actually having abilities would get you a book, but the, you don't, you know, one without the other is, they're both important. So for people who are trying to get into books, I always like to, I always like to say that and also say how long it took me to say more than half my life because, you know, the plenty of times I was going to be like, fuck this over that time and I didn't and other people told me I was being stupid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I had, uh, if I had not, if I had given up any time since the time between now when I was 14 and now, this would ever be happening. So it is, it can be a long journey, but it does happen if you keep at it. I think that's great advice. Um, uh, Mark Doyle's name seems to be one that's coming up all the time when it comes to DC these days. Um, what is it about working with him that's... I mean, obviously you knew him and all these other people knew him and he's bringing them into the fold. What is it about working with him that has sparked this new creative direction at DC? Well, I mean, Mark, Mark knows how to pick the right people and, and, um, and sort of foster them to do the things that they're passionate about and good at doing. And that actually goes for editorial too, because my, my actual editor, editor on the book isn't Mark. It's, it's Chris Conroy. Um, but, you know, Chris has been amazing to work with and he's super on the ball and he, you know, he cares just as much about, uh, Midnighter as I do as, as it came to, as it came to pass. So once the book got approved, like it was just like, you know, it was a perfect, and he had recently come over from a different office. So it was just the perfect conflict of us to be working with an editor who is sort of sees, the, sees things the way I do, but also a super veteran of like what works and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, tolerates my curves, which are full of, like, extremely specific, like, weapon, uh, travel porn, and, like, food references. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's been, they're very patient uh, with my scripts when it comes to the weird uh, references I put in. But, you know, I think Mark, Mark just, he comes from a place, he loves comics. Uh, and everyone, I mean, everyone, obviously, everyone loves comics, but he, he, is just full of energy and he's never jaded and it, that that is just sort of like infectious when you're sort of like you're sort of like putting a book together with him and that goes for Chris and, and Dave and, and Rebecca and everyone I've worked with so far in DC like it's it's uh, you know there's they always want to try new things and so with Midnighter especially a book without any sort of huge continuity gems in it or something like that. Like, it's always like, yeah, let's do that. And it's just a really uh, sort of great feeling, great feeling push to have when you're doing a book. 
Yeah. I love that you brought up the the travel slash food porn aspect of the book because um, when when you describe midnight or when people when you or other people describe midnighter on Twitter, often the um, the discussion is, oh, he you know he he loves punching people, you know. Um, like that's, that's what his character comes down to. But then when you actually read the comic that you've written, you, this, these like trappings on the side, like him eating at a nice restaurant or, uh, drinking at a bar or traveling to Russia of all places are just these nice trappings that, that sort of add to his character in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And I'm wondering how much of that how how much of yourself do you put into midnighter if anything at all because i know that those are some of the things that you're interested in well i think that you know i mean there's certainly a little bit of me in him i'm pretty sarcastic and i can be a pretty a pretty pretty cold and standoffish asshole uh, <laughs> i've never killed anyone but um <laughs> but at the same time, and yeah, like I do like food, but I, I listen. Also, I make comics, so it's not like I can afford to travel that much. Uh, but um, I think it's more like, but yeah, those are my interests. But beyond that, I just think that there's no reason to, especially in this day and age, uh, with the vast amount of reference you have uh, and the unlimited budget that comes with comics. Like, there's no reason not to give that level of verseness and detail and sense of place to a book, you know, like uh, one of the reasons we, we make comics is because there's no budget. So if you're going to go everywhere, like why not go everywhere? Why not explore places we just can't go? Uh, and, and like, there's no excuse in my mind to have like an afterthought setting, like the jungle, you know, or like the desert. Like, I don't know. It's, it, it makes it feel more real. It makes it feel more weighted. And so especially with a book like Midnighter, where a big part of the thrust is taking this guy who's never really had like a human existence and like violently thrusting him into this world of normal people uh, when he's at least sort of not punching people in the brain. Uh, <laughs> it makes it feel that way. And like real people have interests and real people live in real places. And so I try to have like real landmarks in the book and try to have food that looks like food and actually is like, you know, has, has character and all these things because, um, that it just adds another layer. Like it, nothing is uh, nondescript and, and that's something that comes from me, but it also comes from ACO. I mean, even, he doesn't let me, if I just write that like Midnighter and, and, and Matt or Midnighter and Jason are dressed casually, he's like, okay, but like, what does your outfit look like? You know? So he, nothing is ever off the cuff and like, we're always want to have like that sense of detail, uh, where you feel like they are people you could run into or like, you know, there is like, what, what is he, what is he wearing? What is he eating? What is he doing? Where is he going? Uh, why not let the book take people new places? And it's, and also by doing that, hopefully, like, when we do go places that aren't real, because we've spent so much time sort of establishing and, and showing love and care to, like, places like Oakland, uh, hopefully, like, it does add a little bit of agency and realism if we go somewhere like Opal City, 
even though it's not real, like you've seen how we treat real places, so it feels more real, hopefully, when we go there. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I love that approach and, and, and your answer to that because um, one of the things that I always think of when I read Midnighter um, is how carefully considered all of that stuff seems to be. Um, you, you definitely notice it, so so hats off to you for um, for ending up with that on the page, um, and that that extends to the 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 diet whether it's the dialogue or his his uh, unspoken interactions with people. I feel like everything is so carefully considered and uh, everything's meaningful. Um, how much of that? I I, I don't. <laughs> I know it's not easy, but it seems to come easy for you. How how much are you consciously considering that everything you're writing to craft this character and sort of deepen his world? Uh, uh, how 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 much are you consciously making sure that every single word accomplishes that and nothing is wasted? Well, I mean, it's uh, I mean, I don't know. On one hand, Midnighter is a really easy book to write, like more than other things that I've written, because I just I I do sort of empathize with the character and, uh, in sort of um, many ways, and I do identify with him. Uh, so. In that respect, like the dialogue is not is not usually that challenging for me because I mean yeah, Midnighter does essentially talk like I do. Uh, it, you know, maybe more boastful and maybe a little more articulate because that is not a new character. Like those, there are the cues, uh, and I think that that's something that developed his style of speech. The way I write him is based not only off of Warren Ellis's style of writing, my own way I talk, but also on Christos Gage's. Uh, single issue he did in the previous Midnighter book, uh, which has, like, these lines, like, his Midnighter is a super smart guy but doesn't realize what sounds weird and, and like, what normal <laughs> people do and don't know. And so, like, I was always struck by this line in Gage's issue he did with John Paul Leone. It was right after coup d'etat. And he runs in, and he's been challenged by Hawksmoor to, like, help a normal person. So it was also kind of like a proto version of our entire book in many ways. Um... And so he's like, Hawksmoor's like, all you ever do is like fight soldiers. Why don't you help a normal person? And so he's going to help this girl find her cat, okay? <laughs> and um, so he, but of course, but he's like in full costume and he just approaches her on the street. And like that to me is also the humor of Midnighter. It's maybe not like actively funny, but it's like he doesn't realize how awkward that is. It's like the humor <laughs> in the plant, which is oftentimes oddly funny. Uh, like, that's the humor in Midnighter. So he approaches this woman, and, uh, and they have recently taken over the presidency in coup d'etat and then given it up. So, and he's like, and he's like, hi, ma'am, I'm Midnighter, and, uh, you know, I noticed your cat's missing. And she's like, oh, didn't she used to be the president? And his response was like, well, no, ma'am, presidents are elected. I was part of a junta, as if everybody knows what that means. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, that's on one hand, like, if you don't get it, that's terrible dialogue, but if you get it, it's hilarious, because you can tell that he says that as if, like, why well, wouldn't everybody fucking know what that means? Like, <laughs> oh, that's great. Just and like so putting like a... That... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> That's why how I try to write him too. Although I've never been able to work Hunter in there. I, there's a, there's actually a line. There's a scene in issue three that is like my ode to that. But you haven't read issue three, and you'll see very soon next week. 
Oh, can't wait. It's just like putting a, a smart mark on a one-night stand. It's just completely normal, right? Well, so, yeah, and that's, you know, also people seem to take it the wrong way. Uh, I mean, but also the right way. Like, in the micro version, the wrong way, but in the macro version, they see that, yeah, he doesn't understand what's weird and what's not weird, but, um, you know, there's, there are people in the network in the A-pager, and, like, he puts a smart mark on Jason because he saved his life at the restaurant, not because they hooked up. Mm, um, sure. Yes, they hooked up, too, and yeah, he doesn't, again, like, it's an afterthought for him because he's a guy that, like, you know, had his spine ripped out in the place of the computer, so, like, you know, putting putting a birthmark on someone that lets them contact him is kind of like small potatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, he doesn't think that would be weird because, again, he comes from a superhero world, and, you know, that isn't weird for him. Uh, you know, in the authority in Stormwatch, like he had, uh, you know, the engineer made a little like hornet that flies into his ear and she talks to him all the time. So these are like, when you think about the tropes of like super teams, uh, things that seem kind of normal for them, you know, once you're just living in a day of day life, we're kind of like, all right, that's a little strange. Uh, you know, I like my coworkers. I don't want them to be, uh, in my ear 100% of the time. <laughs> Especially you know, not after today, after that tasting today. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I think it's funny that you, you say you think that um, Midnighter is a relatively easy character to write because I think prior to you, a lot of people had trouble finding a, a, you know, a clear direction or a good voice for him for a while now. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's, you know, this new take is almost... I don't know. I don't want to be hyperbolic, but like the most kind of clear view we've seen of him since, you know, some of the other creators, like you mentioned, like Ellis or, or Gage um, had tackled him. Um, why do you think, what do you think it is about um, Midnighter that, um, I don't know, maybe makes him a little harder for people to get a grasp on? Well, I mean, I don't know. That that's a tough. I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it's weird talking about other people's work, um, and I try not to do it. But uh, I think that in general, I mean, it can be hard. You know, like so. The the realistic answer is that, like, barring the fact that the character, yes, himself, like, hasn't had a strong thematic push, and like, especially going to the DC, like, maybe people struggle with how to integrate him and like where he. And, like, yeah, I have a very clear vision of that. I've, I've said that in multiple interviews, and I, and I think it makes him cool. I actually think it's a cop-out answer before I move on to be like, oh, like, he only belongs in the Wildstorm you. And, like, I, I actually think that uh, moving Midnight to the DCU, like, yes, we all have an affection for the authority, uh, including me. I read that stuff all the time. Um but, you know, uh, in pre- before integration into the DCU, like, A, integrating other companies into the DCU is a, is a long-standing tradition. If, if they didn't do that, there would be no Shazam, there would be no Question, there would be no Blue Beetle. Uh, so, on one hand, like, I think it's exciting, and it's part of a tradition that gave me a lot of characters I was excited about when I was younger, because they had just brought in Charlton and Fawcett. Uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, he... It was easy to find the voice when he was a wild term because everyone was a killer, and he was just one of the guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the DCU, he's not, 
uh, one of the guys because he is more violent than a lot of people. He's not the Punisher because uh, he yeah. actually like doesn't always kill people, and you know, oftentimes it's worse when he doesn't kill people for them. But um, and even that note is something that is in his like first appearance in Stormwatch Volume Four, Number Four. So, but in the DCU, it means he means something more. You know, it's a world where like yeah, the Flash will punch you, and like maybe you know, you know, Batman will break your jaw, or you'll be like on a colostomy bag for whatever six months. <laughs> But, uh, but, like, when you see Midnighter, like, you know that you've sort of fallen off the planet. Like, whatever you've done is bad enough that, like, you're, you're not going to the hospital. Uh, yeah. Standing up. Standing right. up at me. So, he's not just, he's not just dark Batman. Darker Batman. You he's know. something different. He's both darker and lighter. Like, it's the yeah. thing. He's more compassionate and more angry. Um, and so I really like that. And I don't know. I, I think that it is. It is hard to break free of that, and it's hard to, I think it can be intimidating for some people. I think it can be intimidating, and it was intimidating for me, like the, the, the shoes that you're, that you're filling and stuff, working in a character like that. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, some, some characters resonate with other people. I mean, I had a hard, I have a hard time with some, I would probably have a hard time with some other DC characters, but for me... Like the idea of a guy who, you know, walks down the street being exactly who he is and doesn't really give a fuck how many people are staring at him. Like, that that's him and that's easy to write because, like, who wouldn't want to be like that, you know? Uh, you know? And so I, I find it very... Once I realized that's who he was, you know? Like, that idea that Midnighter is actually about joy and it's actually about not having the weird pathos that a lot of vigilantes have, um, I was like, okay, like, I get this guy. And, it, and it, in light of that, it has been, it has been rel- relatively easy. Because he's a guy that, you know, like, I, I guess, yeah, like, he, if he sees, it's kind of like Midnighter and Grayson, you know? They're great together. I'm excited that they're coming back and they're coming back and going to Russia in issues four and five because, like, that's a perfect pairing for him. Grayson is a guy who was raised by this dude that, like, all, that has all these rules. And, like, if Midnighter sees that you have a rule, he's going he's gonna to bust his chops about it. Because hmm. uh, that's what he does, because he thinks it's hilarious and because he can't. Um, you know, I think that he thinks Grayson is hilarious, and that's why I love kind of kind of writing them together. He doesn't respect those things. Uh, and he might even like Grayson, but he just, you know, he's, he's not a guy for the bullshit, uh, which is why I, I kind of love him as a spoiler for a lot of other characters. Um, I, I'm interested to kind of touch on, you know, how you view continuity in this brave new DC world. This is one of the things we've talked about a lot just internally is, you know, not necessarily knowing what's canon, what's not canon. So when you're writing a character that has this this rich tradition that maybe isn't really available to play with, do you go in just in your own mind? Is this the same Midnighter from The Authority, or is this a different version of that? Are you, in your mind, referencing things that happened 10 years ago, or do you try and approach it from a totally new place? No, I mean, I'm definitely not. I mean, to me, it's like... 
Honestly, the country to me has been very cut and dry. This is the same United that appeared in Stormwatch in the New 52, but it's not the same one from the Authority because that, you know, that wasn't integrated into the DCU. Um, so uh, we are seeing him at a point that readers have never seen him before, which is also the reason that people who are immediately worked up that he's not with Apollo um, I can't comment on that one way or another, other than to say that when you met, when anyone, when the world met Midnighter in 1998 uh, in Stormwatch, in that version of Stormwatch, uh, he and Paul had already been together for five years off panel. Uh, but in the New 52, uh, because they had switched up their origins and things, they've only known, like, well, they met for the first time in the New 52 Stormwatch, and they've only known each other for like three months. So this Midnighter book and writing the character now is actually an opportunity to see him and see them when no one has ever seen them before, uh, which I think is an exciting opportunity. No one has ever seen it, un- seen them as characters until they really sort of realize what they were to each other. And, um, you know, there's five years to explore, and you don't know, and with, then no one knows what happened in between other than that they were on the road, so to speak. So... Uh, no, I mean, to me, it is the character from the New 52, uh, when you're talking about continuity. Now, my presentation, like, is Primal Midnighter, you know? I, I, when, whenever you're doing a relaunch of a character, you have to get back to, you have to dilute, you have to distill it, not dilute it. You have to distill it and get to the core, because when you've had sort of these other takes show up, for people who are long-time fans of the character, let's say, oh, that's why I love the guy. And then for people who never read him before, which I, we knew was going to happen because this is the sort of like line-wide push for new books, you've got to be like, look, this is who he is, this is why you should love him, and make it very simple at first and easy to understand. So, which one am I writing? I mean, it's the new 52 Midnighter 100%, but um, personality-wise, I think we are getting back to the sort of holistic take on the character, and I don't think that that should be that confusing, you know, in many ways, like, whether it's the 1940s, the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, Elseworlds, there are still things that make Bruce Wayne Bruce Wayne, you know, and, and Batman Batman, and like, getting away from that isn't a continuity thing, getting back to it isn't a continuity thing, it's an understanding of the character thing, which is what I think we're trying to get back to. That makes a lot of sense, um, and I think that's a, a really great way to put it. Uh, real quickly, and I don't know, I don't know if this question is stepping over the line, so I'm, I'm warning you in advance. But um, you know, the first issue was done by ACO. The second issue was not. Um, as a writer of the book, how much does the artist that is on the title affect what you're writing, or does it not at all? Do you feel like you turn in your script and whatever happens next is its own thing? Uh, no, I think that it is, well, here's the thing, like, in, uh, in collab, I mean, comics are collaboration, so how much does it affect my script if I know who's going to be on it, uh, beforehand, uh, which we have, like, yeah, you just sort of, in my opinion, that's one of the responsibilities of a writer, you know, because, because making comics is a team, it's a team project, so if you know who's going to be in the book, you have to you have to dig into these people's uh, work a little bit and sort of see what their you know where what their style is. You know you can't write a quietly script and give it to 
Uh, well, you can't write a quiet loose joke and give it to Brian Hitch, and they're both great artists. Um, uh, you know, and you can't write a Garo script and give it to uh, anyone. Like, so, like, I, I think that uh, it affects the script, and then you go back and you sort of see what their strengths are. And yeah, you want to write to them because you want to craft a script that artist, the specific artist will enjoy because that makes the work better. I mean, yes, comics is a job. Uh, there's no, I'll make no bones about that, but you can always make it more enjoyable and exciting, and then that comes through in the work. Uh, so I think that that is on me as a creator and on any sort of person uh, sort of doing the step one of a, of a process. Yeah, you have to find out what they're really going to be able to jam on. And, um, you know, at the same time, like, the process doesn't end, you know, that when you turn the script in. I think that's important, too. When I turn the script into Alec Morgan, when I turn it into ACO, um, certainly, like, those to the beats and that's my direction and that's you know and all those things but like there's emails after and there's like ongoing conversations about how we're going to make this as good as it can be and like what's going to work and what's going to not work what liberties can be taken what liberties can't be taken and like that that's collaboration people ask not an issue too but like in the case of ACO for issue one they're like oh well how do you do these scripts that have like 18 or 15 panels well I don't all of those things come from the conversations after uh, with sort of like what can, you know, with ACO as saying like, you know, this is where I really like to blow this scene up or things like that. And so uh, in the case of issue two, like it, it's not an overlying question at all. I think that that is part of the responsibility to the creator to realize that you are part of a team and uh, like, you know, look at what someone like Alex can really get into, the type of scenes you can really jam on and, and, and put them in there so the work sort of pops more than it would if it were, you know, because you know you got to draw it either way, but like you can make it something they really dig into and they're excited about, and that's and that's how you make the book good. Speaking of uh, collaboration and, and team efforts, one of your your next big things coming up is Batman and Robin Eternal. Um, can you can you tell us anything about your your hopes and dreams for that book? I know it's still a little ways off, and you probably can't get into too much, but any any teases you want to throw out there? Well, I can uh, at least make sure that all the information that is supposed to be out there is out there. So uh, the <laughs> biggest piece announcement is that Cassandra Kane is coming back, which is very exciting. And it's exciting for me because if you've read Midnighter, you know I like writing weird-ass action scenes. So um, <laughs> that's super exciting for me uh, that she's coming back. And um, and also introducing a new villain to the Bat Mythos that I can't talk more about other than to say that she's going to be like a huge... Uh, like global spanning uh, villain that is really going to be on par with some of the greatest sort of timeless Batman villains. We hope, uh, you know, certainly it's certainly trying, and um, and it and it's a story that's about is it, not just about Batman, but it's going to be uh, sort of examining the idea of Robin because it's Robin's 75th anniversary. So uh, all those things are exciting to me. I definitely. Um, that, you know, you were talking about things that are intimidating, like I've never written those characters before, and so it's exciting. Uh, it's It's been uh, challenging to sort of blend my more esoteric style, like I can't have like five pages of Dick Grayson talking about the fucking truffles, even though I would probably <laughs> like that. <laughs> 
you know, like Dick Grayson explores the wonders of duck fat. Like, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so uh, we've had to find worker hunts for that. And yet I still managed to fit some stuff in. So that's exciting for me. Uh, as you'll see when you get to my issues. Um, you know, I think it, it'll be a fun, it'll be a fun meeting. I, I hope to bring my strange uh, sort of choreography that I that, that comes in my books when it comes to action uh, to a different set of characters. Uh, and, like, it's no secret that Grayson is in the book, and he's the DC's, like, greatest gymnast and acrobat, so hopefully we get some crazy shit in there, and that, that's my goal. That's awesome. We're, we're all very, very excited about that book. Um, so one of the traditions we have on our show is to play a, a little game with our with the different guests we have on. So we have a game uh, designed for you, and hopefully you'll have a little bit of fun with it. So we were talking before we went on air about how you uh, you work part time in the spirits industry. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to toss out a character name for you, and uh, you're going to tell us what you think their signature cocktail is going to be. Signature cocktail? Okay. Yeah, like their like, like, like go-to at the bar. Four straight alcohol. Okay, well, I'll play that game. Okay, <laughs> cool. So uh, let's start with uh, Midnighter himself. Midnighter, as we established, is is uh, is a whiskey guy, or trying to be a whiskey guy, uh, so to speak. And in my mind, he's a single malt guy, because with his ability to sort of pay attention to detail, uh, it would be something, you know, with an almost infinite amount of variation, but very, two very simple ingredients that he would find very fascinating. All right. Uh, what about Dick Grayson? Uh, Grayson is, t- is, is to more tough, but he is a spy now. And so I like the, the cheap answer is that obviously it's a, it's a vodka martini. Uh, but I don't think that that's Grayson's thing at all. If I were to get emotional and sort of theatrical about it, I would say that Grayson's drink would have to be something like a classic, like Jerry Thomas punch, uh, <laughs> going, back, going back to his roots as a circus guy. Like he would want something with a little bit of history to it, but also something you could have like in a pretty tall drink because he doesn't, you know, he's not a fancy guy. He wants to like sit on the steps of some carnival ride and have some type of, thing that maybe, like, his family was having a hundred years ago. So my answer for Grayson is a classic Jerry Thomas punch. Oh, I, I love this game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we also found out just pretty recently that you were going to be doing a doing a Shazam uh, one-shot. So while you were preparing for that, um, have you given any thought to what Billy Batson might drink if he... When he's of opportunity. Billy Batson is not old enough. Oh, when when if he if he got when he turned twenty one, what's his dream twenty first birthday? What is Freddie buying him on his twenty first birthday? The answer is probably like a stolen like Keystone Red can that he found. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, Billy Batson, though, when he turns twenty one, to me is definitely going to be like a beer guy. Like he seems kind of like a, a, a guy's guy uh, even now at the age of 15. So to me, he is like a proto beer nerd. Uh, when it gets into these things, uh, a guy that will probably start off with like wheat beers and like hyper bisons and then slowly become a hophead as things go on. Uh, <laughs> like 
and get obsessed with IPAs. That's my guess. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I'm not going to attempt to butcher the pronunciation, but the main character from Undertow, you you created him, you give us the name. Uh, well, you mean Ukenu the kid or the leader, uh, Rita Magical? Uh, the leader, the, the kid. You know, we're trying to have a family friendly show here, so. <laughs> Well, there's no drinking age in Atlantis. That's true. Okay. <laughs> so, read them. Um, what do you think? Well, Antrigal doesn't really... We've never seen that, have we? I don't think Antrigal drinks, to be honest. Uh, but, having said that, he's probably tried some of the... Uh, oh, hell, what did I call it? Uh, there's a type of fermented algae that people that people eat. Uh, and, and have, like, different vintages of in undertow, and, like, they get real high. <laughs> and so, um, like, it, it, it's like fermented kelp that gets you, that then makes you crip. And, like, to me, like, that is more what Antrigal would be into versus uh, some type of some type of drink. Having said that, though, he would probably still tip one back uh, some type of, like, some type of drink back with uh, with the amphibian. Uh, with their growing bromance that they have after the first story arc. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, how about Catwoman? Oh, Catwoman? Can I call Genevieve? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Catwoman... That's tough, because Catwoman is, I believe, of Italian extraction, so they've got reactions to pick a wine. Uh, having said that, she does have pretty good taste and pretty refined taste. So I feel like if I were to go into a nerdy answer, <laughs> it would either be, uh, and I'll cut real deep, it would either be like some type of Calabrian Amaro, uh, like a digestive Amaro, or she might uh, you know, as she grows older and becomes even more pretentious, uh, be into like single varietal grappas, uh, <laughs> things that are uniquely Italian. All right. What about Apollo? Apollo, right? Um, well, I have established that Apollo likes Russian food in the book, which is something I totally made up. Uh, and so the answer has got to be vodka but not mixed drinks like party vodka like if you've seen like Bourdain and his Russian fixer when they go out to dinner like that type of vodka consumption (laughs) which is a lot you've never seen Zemir and Bourdain Uh, it gets pretty heavy because you know in Russia if you open a bottle of vodka it's bad luck not to finish the party I did not know that. Um, I don't think I could do that. <laughs> no, I could. I certainly couldn't do that. Um, yeah, trust me, you can under a certain amount of peer pressure. From elderly Bob Bushkins that are out drinking with you at the age of 70. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, this was one we threw in just because we felt it would be near, near impossible to come up with, but since you're an expert, I think you can handle it. Uh, negative man. The energy being, or the guy wrapped in bandages? Like, which portion of Negative Man? (laughs) Both? Because Negative Man... Go for it. 
I mean, listen, you're talking about Larry Trainer because we all know Negative Man doesn't have a mouth. Andy can also only be out of Larry Trainer's body <laughs> that's he died. So, this, this question is unrealistic. Uh, uh, Negative Man is also a whiskey guy, though, because you may or may not remember that he was also a chess pilot like Hal Jordan, so I feel like he only drinks really bad well whiskey that he can pay like $2. <laughs> Uh, last one Vince take us home alright sorry I'm too busy laughing here Uh, okay last one Sergeant Rock Sergeant Rock Mm -hmm. Utica Club beer (laughs) (laughs) Because because Utica Club beer was produced for the army during World War II there you go. And we learned something, too, today. So. Yeah. So, Steve, thank you so much for chatting with us. Where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, the best thing, I mean, I do have my website, which is updated pretty at least once a month when the solicitations come out, um, which is thestevorlando.com. And also, but the main thing is the place to find me where I'll be constantly retweeting other creators that I like and like weird people talking about wine and taking dumps on Mike Huckabee <laughs> is uh, on, on Twitter. I, he never responds to me. Like, I always try. Uh, I try to get him, like, if I, I try to get him and Carl Rove, if one of them would just say something to me, it would make my life so good. Uh... Anyway, uh, at, on Twitter, at the Steve Orlando uh, is really where you should go because that's where I talk about comic stuff and uh, it's where I actually sort of respond to people and it's probably, and you know, and yes, I will call my country a failed sorcerer uh, pretty often. Uh, but, uh, but I do other things too. I mostly talk about comics and wine and Scotch, so that, that's what you really find there. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I'd say that's as succinct a description of your Twitter as we can get. Uh, so I thanks- post, pictures, post pictures of my dog too. Okay, pictures. Let's let's be real. I'm a corgi. I, I do post pictures. <laughs> uh, if we can get political for one second, I just want you guys to know. I don't know if you're aware of this. That Scott Walker is an anagram of Warlock Test. <laughs> I didn't know that. He's such a mild evil, though, compared to the others, even though he is evil. Uh, he's he's dumb. That's his thing. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, but he's never threatened to call fire down. Like, to me, like, nothing, <laughs> else, nothing else that the Huck does. Like, the I don't even care. Like, I wasn't even, like, yeah, like the, the Auschwitz comment. Poor taste. Not a good look, Mike. But, like, but, like, Claiming that you're gonna like that you've got that you've like touched a fire flower and now you can shoot fire uh, and then not doing it. <laughs> well, <just> unacceptable. <laughs> that seems like the perfect place to take a break. We'll be back in one second.
All right, welcome everyone to another installment of the DC Three Cast. I'm Zach Wilkerson, and I'm joined by two lovely gentlemen. I'm Brian. I'm Vince. And tonight we have a lot of great things to talk about. Um, since our last talk, something pretty uh, there was a pretty big event. Um, San Diego Comic Con happened, and DC announced a lot of stuff. Um, I would say the most stuff. That they have yeah. in the last couple of years, definitely at San Diego. More stuff. I I feel like compared to anyone else, they dwarfed everyone else in just the sheer amount of things that they announced. Yeah, Marvel did that weird thing where they announced it all the week before. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. So I don't know. Before we get into it, what do you guys? What was your favorite announcement from San Diego? DC related, uh, yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a huge mark for Grant Morrison, of course. Which which either makes me extremely cultured or a total plebe, depending <laughs> on what internet community you ask. <laughs> but uh, multiversitycomics.com. Uh, <laughs> there you go. I, I think it pretty much says where we stand on this. Yeah. So so the idea of multiversity two is like a gift from the new gods for crying out loud because. Um, beautiful <laughs> because uh, uh, <laughs> thank you um, uh, remember remember oh six months to a year ago or maybe it was even longer ago when somebody interviewed Grant Morrison around the time of Multiversity and he said you know after Multiversity and after my Wonder Woman graphic novel with Yannick Paquette I'm going to be taking a break from Cape Comics for a while like an indefinite while, you know, there is nothing on my plate. And I am so glad that that is not the case. Yeah. Because now we're getting multiversity graphic novels from him and a Batman black and white graphic novel, I guess. I think mm-hmm. a series of graphic novels. Is it a, is it a series? Yeah. 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 So, like, that break <laughs> basically didn't exist because we haven't even gotten the Wonder Woman book yet. I don't, I don't know. Think I don't know what changed. That up. I'm, I'm sorry. What, what did you say? I, was, I don't know what changed in that time. Did he just have so much fun doing the multiversity that he wanted to keep going? Well, I'll tell Jim Lee and Dim, and Dan DiDio backed a dump truck of money up to his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, but but that's great. I mean, more Morrison and more Morrison in the vein of. His multiversity, I, I'll take that any day. Yeah, um, that's a pretty great announcement. I think for me, my favorite announcement was uh, it, it's it's between two. It's between the Titans Hunt book that spins out of Convergence, that is finally going to try and bring the more classic version of the Teen Titans into some some sort of continuity with the new 52 and i'm a huge teen titans fan so that's you're gonna pick that (laughs) uh, that's big or but but right up next to that is batman and robin eternal because i think that doing a dick grayson centric story is great and the writing talent lined up on it is great and uh it has me very excited yeah zach what about you um Definitely the Morrison stuff, obviously, but since Vince said that already, mine I'm going to go with the Milestone announcement. Mm. 
I forgot about that. That's that's a great announcement as well. I think that's that's pretty exciting. And also just the fact um, between the Morrison announcement and the Milestone announcement, there's just a big... It seems like there's a big push at DC for more original graphic novels, which I think is awesome. Um, because I just really like that format a lot. Yeah. Um, I have to say, this San Diego, to me... Seem like DC covering all of their bases. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you guys want us to diversify our creator lineup more? Okay, motherfucking Milestone's back. Oh, you want us to go and do more multiple Earth stuff? Okay, we have Convergence spinoffs and we have Multiversity 2 happening. Like, oh, you guys like the weekly? Here's another weekly. You guys miss some classic characters? We're going to do miniseries on all these classic characters. You want more miniseries anthologies? Superman American Alien. Boom. Like, everything that people wanted they kind of delivered on, and I don't know how they did that. And some of it even looks good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's get into some of this stuff. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's start with Batman and Robin Eternal for crying out loud. Okay, that is going to be great, I think. Um, I agree, and it's about time Robin got some damn love around here. Yes, Agreed. Uh, let's just talk Rob, about the Robins. Robins, yeah. Robins. Um, let's talk about the writing team for a second here. So Scott Snyder and James Tinian are again the showrunners of it, and Tim Seeley is the only returning member of last year's writing team. But we have Genevieve Valentine, Steve Orlando, Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly, and Ed Brisson uh, joining up the writing team. Um, for some of those guys, for for Lansing and Kelly, that's their first DC work, I believe, mm-hmm. and Brisson and as well. Brisson too, yeah, yeah. Um, Genevieve Valentine, of course, has been doing incredible work on Catwoman. I mean, really, really incredible work on Catwoman. And Steve Orlando, who you either just heard on the show or you're about to hear on the show, um, he his Midnighter has been has been really, really great so far as well. So. I, I think it's going to be a really, really strong uh, writing team. What do you guys think about the new writers on board? I think it's really exciting. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I'm not really familiar with Lansing or Kelly. Do you know? They're the team behind Hacktivist. Oh, okay. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it, they're an interesting pair along with Ed Brisson. I love Ed's work, but he doesn't scream Gotham to me, which mm-hmm. is part of why it's so exciting. Yeah, this really seems like a lineup of creators that... I mean, I can't imagine three years ago, or even two years ago, DC trotting out this lineup of creators. Yeah, As, aside that's aside from Snyder and Tinian, were any of them working for DC two years ago? Mmm... No, I don't think so. No. I think Seeley did stuff maybe every once in a while. Okay. But he wasn't a regular yet. Yeah. Um it's it's pretty pretty phenomenal. Uh the one bit of of downer news with this, um well first of all, I, how do you guys feel about it being six months versus a year? Do you care about that at all? I I think that's fine. Um I think it's better to maybe play it a little safer the second time around just and not to commit to a whole year again just because of DC's track record with weeklies. 
um, you know, the follow-up, they, they tend to, we've seen a trend where they tend to fall off the more you have, like, in succession. Mm-hmm. You know, you had 52, and then you had Countdown and Trinity, and there was a bit of a fall-off in terms of interest and quality, I think. Not that I expect that with this, but I think by asking readers to commit to only six months up front as opposed to a year, um, you go in with maybe just a little bit more um, goodwill. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, my, my only concern with it is I don't want this to feel like it's less than Batman mm-hmm. Eternal. Because to me, the Bat family is what made Batman Eternal so great. So to have a book focused on the Bat family, I don't want that to feel like the little kid's table. True. That That's my only concern about it being six months. Vince, do you have any concern about that? Uh, no, I don't... I, no, from like a time... I think the, the creative team that they're putting on the book and the art, I, I think, shows that they're taking it seriously. And... Um, I think the amount of time that it's going to last is more or less immaterial because I'm I'm guessing six months from when it starts, they'll have some, some event in the DC Universe that is going to uh, take all those characters away. I'm sure there will be some cro- massive crossover event announced by that time, you know, and running a book for a year... Um, kind of eats up a lot of that that available time to them mm-hmm. because when what is the last what's the last event that DC had uh, before Convergence because that was kind of its own unique thing um, have was it uh, Forever guess, Evil Forever Evil Forever Evil or the Future's End month yeah if we're counting the month yeah. events well I'm I mean like like a crossover event like like. Blackest Night or Brightest Day or, you know, Civil War, you know, that type of thing. I guess Forever yeah. Evil, and that didn't even extend out that far. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they're about due for, like, some massive crossover event, aren't they? Especially because they're skipping the September event. Yeah, I feel like it's coming... I feel like there's something coming that's going to, like, be on the scale of a Blackest Night, where it's like the status quo-defining event of DC Comics. And I feel like it's going to be announced before Batman and Robin Eternal is over. Mm-hmm. So, you don't think it'll be Dark Side War? I think we already know pretty much what that's going to entail. And we're, you know? kind of, we're kind of already in that. Yeah. I think there's... Yeah, I, but... I just, I'm just feel like it's time like a, for something. As far as like a status quo altering thing. I, I, I don't know, but that, that, that's an interesting conversation to have because that is happening, as far as I can tell, behind current continuity. So it's right. kind of hard to be a status quo shaking event if it's happening six months ago. I guess that's true. Yeah, but anyway, that's, that's all speculation. I yeah. mean... Let's talk about Batman and Robin Eternal. Yeah, um, I I think you know the artists is the artists are probably what we want to talk about next. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how you guys feel about uh, Tony Daniel, but I'm just glad he's not writing. Yeah, the book. <laughs> yeah um, agreed. And he, and so to be fair, he's credited as the lead artist, and yet he's only solicited for issue one. Issues two through four have different artists. Sure. 
right? So Which do you I think, think? Oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was just gonna say I I think Daniel, um, I think he does good Batman work, um, and I guess who who would have been? I guess was Fabok considered the lead artist on Eternal? Yes, sort of. Yeah, he was considered. He did the first three, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he kind of rotated in every fourth or fifth or something like right, that. Right, right. More or less. I, I mean, I think Daniel is um, as as worthy of a quote-unquote lead artist. Um, yeah, I can and, see that. Yeah, the other two guys they've announced are um, Paul Pelletier. Am I pronouncing that right? I, I never know. I believe I, I so. believe so. And um, who is on the fourth one? Scott Eaton. Scott Eaton. You know, I, I'm more of a fan of Pelletier than I am Eaton, but I don't have anything against Scott Eaton's work necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's an interesting one because um, uh, I've, he did a bunch of issues of Amazing Spider-Man, like in the early or mid 2000s, and I thought they were really great, like really great cape stuff, but. Um, then he's had some more recent work at DC that I didn't think was as strong. Like, I felt like it was almost two different artists, actually. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking in particular, I'm pretty sure he had some issues of Future's End. He did. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping for Batman and Robin Eternal, he'll, he'll bring more of his amazing Spider-Man skills to the table. Um, cause he's got it in him for sure. Um, but, but, yeah. I, I also I, wonder how much is going to be uh, pre, pre-broken up storyline-wise. Like, you know, we saw by the end of, of Eternal, there were certain characters who were more associated with certain artists at that point. You know, so-and-so was doing the, the, um, the Spectre story, for instance. You know, so I wonder mm-hmm. if, if he's going to be given a character that will more fit his art style. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, and this is this is pure speculation too, but I think it's interesting because uh, the hacktivist guys are on board. Um, Marcus Toe was drawing hacktivist while that was going on, mm-hmm. and I I know he was most recently with Marvel drawing their like new warrior stuff or something, but I would love to see him on Batman and Robin Eternal in some form down the road because I don't know if you guys, like like pre-Flashpoint, if you were reading Red Robin. Oh, that Red Robin was the best. Mm-hmm. Yes, and his art was so good. He's so perfect for that like youthful, street-level Red Robin type art that you need. You know, like his art made that book for me. <laughs> That would be so. Great. I'm hoping that, like, I'm hoping against hope that they like somehow suck him into this. I think Marcus Toad did some DC work not that long ago, though. I'm, I'm sure he did. I, I just think his most recent work was with. Yeah, Marvel. I think he did some stuff on the Flash during the Manipool. Mm. Uh, yes, I think you're right. Yeah, he, he might he might have been the uh, the villain. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is surprisingly hard to Google. <laughs> um, yeah, um, anything else about Batman and Robin Eternal you want to talk about? 
I wonder how much is going to take place in the past, just based off of that first cover. I wonder if that is hinting at where the story is going to go. Yeah, I don't know. Um, he also did some Batwing, by the way. He took over Batwing <laughs> after um, Ben Oliver left. And okay. he did that Huntress miniseries in the New 52. Right. Which, yes. I, which I really enjoyed. Yes. And he did some Flash. You're right. You're right, Zach. Um, yeah, that seems like the most recent. He did an issue of Detective Comics, the Endgame tie-in. Mm, and, okay. Okay, and, so that was very recent. And he had something in the Multiversity Guidebook. Okay. He drew one of the images in that. Oh, I would love for him to be in this. But anyway... Um, yeah, I think it's interesting that that the three quote-unquote central characters in this weekly series are going to be Cass Kane, Harper Rowe, and Dick Grayson, as opposed to some of the other, you know, it, like, very easily could, could wedge Damien in here. Um, I, I know that, uh, Tim Drake's on the cover, but they don't mention Tim Drake as, like, a central character. So it'll be interesting to see what his role is. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think Dick is an interesting choice to... I mean, obviously, he was the first Robin, so... So, so yeah, I mean, how much of this is going to harken back to his time as Robin, which, as far as everyone who's reading comics today is concerned, is, like, a distant memory of a goofy 60s... TV show. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I wonder if that's mm-hmm. actually going to be Daniel's role, where if every fourth or fifth issue something will take place in the past, and that'll be his job. That would be really cool. Because maybe the first issue, maybe that all takes place five, six years it ago. Just, it just makes me think of, do you remember that issue, I think it was, it was Batman 700 that Morrison did mm-hmm. in the middle, it was around like the Batman and Robin time, and it had the three timelines yes of like the past present and future i would love to see something like that in this just because in the new 52 we haven't gotten a lot of you know that that time frame is still pretty nebulous and i you know i think the time for them to like go in and explain all that has long passed i don't think anyone's necessarily necessarily clamoring for that anymore but it would still be cool to go back and get some new stories of of Bruce and, and Dick in their earlier days, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm excited, though. I'm very excited. Yeah. All right, let's move on to... Uh, anything to say about the Robins War that was announced at the same panel? I don't think they... Did they talk much about that other than the books that it was going to be that we're going to be involved in the crossover. Not I think really. It's just, yeah. Isn't it just like Gotham Academy? We are Robin. We and are I Robin. think Robin's son of Batman too. Yeah. I think that's a fun way to tie those books together. Yeah. I, it sounds really cool. It seems to me like this is, you know, I don't know if you guys had read the DiDio interview from recently where he talked about continuity being three concentric circles. Where like the it, the smallest circle in the middle is like what's happening in the main in the quote main books, and then there's a circle just outside of that that happens in the, whenever books cross over. 
that aren't tied into like the big event where continuity is a little bit more fluid and so you can have these three books doing their own thing and it's not going to bother anybody and the continuity is not quite as tight and then there's the third circle which is like the multiversity stuff and the convergence stuff you know and that that sort of the most attention goes to the smallest circle in the middle but there's still all that space to play around with and this feels to me like a perfect example of that second circle of you know Letting these books do their own thing and not be so concerned about how it's tying in with everything else that month. Totally, totally, and I love that idea. Yeah, I'm so glad they're embracing it. You know, this is this is kind of more or less what I've always wanted the new Fifty Two to be. I mean, I think we, you know, I, I hate to count our chickens here, but it seems to me like one of the things that we advocated for was not a reversal of continuity, but just the opportunity to tell stories from other worlds and from the past and all that. And with these OGNs and the Convergence spinoffs, and that, it seems like we're getting pretty close to that. Yeah. I just wanted, like, I wanted DC to just be like on Thanksgiving when you have to loosen your belt after <laughs> eating. Just loosen it up a little bit. I like that. I like that too. But now you're making me miss those JSA JLA Thanksgiving issues. Yes. <laughs> and remember how batshit we all went for the Batman Eternal Thanksgiving image a few years ago? Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I hope we get one of those soon before <laughs> before, oh, Eternal before Eternal. Comes. Yeah. I I, I need have one to of those teaser images. It'll be a Columbus Day image because it's the beginning of October. So. Yeah. It'll be three I ships. Hope Chris, I hope Chris O'Donnell's in it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's move on, I think, to the... Um, I, should we touch again briefly on the uh, Grant Morrison graphic novels? Yeah, I mean, yes. what, is, what did they announce? They announced the Flash one, mm-hmm. and did they announce one other one? I think that was the only multiversity one, if I'm not mistaken. But they did talk about the different worlds that would be explored yes. early on in the the sort of line of multiversity graphic novels, which mm-hmm. included like Pax Americana again, um, the Justice Guild, which is like the fe- isn't it like the female centric Justice League. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I'm looking here, and I think the I think the Earth X one was mentioned. Yeah, the New Reichman, mm-hmm. and even one of the Seven Unknown Worlds. Yes, which, which I think is Earth M. That is one of the seven. Yes. Okay, so it says yeah, it'll begin in 2016 with Multiversity to the Flash, but they're not saying what Earth that is from yet. Mm. Which it sounded like it was going to feature multiple flashes, I thought, eventually, towards the end. That would be very cool. I may be mistaken. I might be thinking... I might be getting the end of Multiversity mixed up. But it seemed like that that final issue, the Multiversity issue 2, the part with the flash... Um, I want to say I read somewhere that that would influence um, the Flash graphic novel. Mm. But did you you guys read about... Somewhere he talked about the basic premise of that Flash 
in the in the graphic novel. Did you guys hear him talk about that? I don't remember, I, so refresh my memory. If I'm remembering the what he said correctly, it, it was basically the idea that this version of the Flash would start off gaining speed, and throughout the course of the story, he would just get progressively faster, and it would be about him dealing with just just dealing with that, um, just becoming progressively faster and not being able to slow down. So it's almost kind of like a, I don't know, it's really pulpy, like almost kind of a a monster story in a way. Not that he he is a monster, but he's becoming something that he can't quite control. control. Yeah. 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 And it's also kind of like speed. (laughs) Yes. I uh, I've always wanted Grant Morrison to do a run on the Flash, so I'm uh, I'm thrilled for this. Do you think anything spills out from this into main continuity? I would love to talk about that once we get towards the uh, convergence spinoffs as well. Okay, I, we can okay. talk about it now, or we can talk. No, we can... we'll we'll hold off then. Okay, um, yeah, that's fine. Um, anything else about? I, mean, I guess we should touch on Batman Black and White quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that DC officially announced this as a series of graphic novels, an anthology series pairs Morrison's original Batman stories with a rotating cast of some of the biggest art talents in comics. I mean, that's a dream come true, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're getting more Morrison Batman. Yeah. Who, who would have expected that? Yeah. Um, I don't think even he expected that because if you think no. about the, the last issue of his run, he talks about how everything has to go back in the box and everything has to go back to the way things were and, and someone will pick up the pieces later or whatever. You know, It was very much about how a writer leaves a very long run on a character and now all of a sudden he finds himself with Batman again. I mean... I. To me, this must be the most loose interpretation of Batman possible. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, you know, there were all the things he talked about how how gay Batman was, <laughs> and like he was never going to be able to do a story where Batman was as gay as he's projecting him to be. But now he can do that. Uh-huh. Now he can do all those sort of weird stories he wants to do without any continuity to hold him back. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. excited for this. I think this is going to be great. Um, my only fear with this is that, you know, how long was it from the announcement of Multiversity to the completion of Multiversity? <laughs> you know, oh, don't, yeah. don't rain on our parade. And, and so, no, what I was going to say is, though, I just, I think you're going to see a graphic, one of these each a year. I think that would be fine. And I'm I'm totally fine. And with that. I also think it maybe a little hopeful. <laughs> yeah, probably. Even if it's one of each a year. If 2016 yeah. brings the multiversity one, and 2017 brings a black and white, and then we we switch it again, mm-hmm. I'd be fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I I never thought we'd be at a place where we'd be having this much more Grant Morrison, <laughs> and that's a great thing. Um. Alright, let's dive into this. This is probably the announcement that left me the most cold 
of everything announced. And that was these 2016 six to eight issue miniseries that were pairing up creators with the characters that they created unless those creators happen to either be dead or excommunicated from DC for whatever reason. So for instance, we have Swamp Thing by Len Wein, Metal Man by Len Wein, Raven by Marv Wolfman, Katana by Mike Barr, Poison Ivy by Amy Chu, Metamorpho by Aaron Lepresti, Sugar and Spike by Keith Giffen, and Firestorm by Jerry Conway. Um, I didn't like the language that was used in these announcements. um, It seemed to me like they were trying to... I mean, you could just see them talking out of both sides of their mouth here. (laughs) we, we, We want a new and exciting take, but we're bringing back the original creator. And, um... To me, that reads like, and no, I don't want to sound ageist here, but to me, it sounds like telling an older person to try to sound like the kids these days. Absolutely. Whether that's fair or not, that's what it sounds like. I was picturing Hans Molman dressed as Bart Simpson. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, you know, trying to pull off being a little kid. Uh you know, none of these creators fill me with any confidence. Well, here's the thing. Uh, again, I don't want to be ageist. The, the The reason that I'm I'm skeptical of all of these books is not because the creators are old. It's because I've seen work from all these creative creators recently, and none of it inspires any confidence in books that are coming in the future. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, Absolutely. It's got, not, it's got nothing to do. Like, the only reason I feel the way I do is because they've already proven it with recent output, at least to me. Right. Uh, and it's not it's not my taste. Well, it's also just strange. I don't know. Some of these characters we haven't seen a lot of. Um, like, Firestorm has kind of been in a bit of limbo recently. Metamorpho. I don't think we've seen Metamorpho like, at all. That if it's yeah, true. there's been the... the female version right, in, in Justice League. Um, but, you know, we've had two really good runs on Swamp Thing in the past five years or so um, by really um, fresh voices, I would say. And now to kind of backtrack seems... I don't know, not... It just feels strange. Yeah, no, I agree with I, that. I know exactly what you mean. I felt the same way about Metal Men because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but it seemed to me like there was a big buzz behind Jeff Johns reintroducing the Metal Men into the current status quo, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it took up issues of Justice League to do so. And beyond that, weren't there whispers that, like, Metal Men would be a animated movie or like some some sort of movie down the road. Like, there was that, yes, yeah. Isn't that the hope for them? And so then, and they're guest starring in Cyborg in October. Oh, yeah, okay, great. So then which it, seems like the natural spot for them to fall absolutely, into. Absolutely, absolutely. So then it seems strange to me that all of a sudden we're getting this Metal Men book by Len Wein that that I'm I'm guessing. I could be proven wrong on this, but I'm guessing it's not going to feel a whole lot like Jeff John's reintroduction of them. 
I read an interview with Ween where he said that the first comic he ever read was a Metal Man comic. And so he has a real love for the characters. And in some ways, I applaud DC for pairing creators with properties they feel passionate about. But is Len Wein the guy to to bring them into, not just into the universe, but into their own series right now? Mm-hmm. Mini or otherwise? Is he the guy? My answer to that is probably no. Well, you How know what? Much? We'll check these out and we'll... We'll report back on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do any of them sound particularly exciting to you guys? Poison Ivy is the only one, and that's purely because of Amy Chu. Yeah, I agree. I love Metamorpho. I don't love Aaron Lepresti. I, I don't mind. His, I, I enjoy his art sometimes. Well, Yes, and that's yeah. a different. That's a different conversation. Yeah. Right, we're having. right. Yeah. Um, but okay, but is he is he writing? I, I was under the impression he was writing and drawing it. Is they have not? not announced any artists yet, oh, as okay. far as I understand. Okay, then maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. I'm trying. I'm looking at the cover, and I can't tell if that's him or not. See, Metamorpho um, to me is a character when you want a really bold artist on that book. And I feel like Lepresti, for all he is, he's not that bold of an artist. Mm-hmm. That's my fear. But that's my fear. that's my comment on all these creators. Do any of these creators say to you, "Wow, this is something interesting"? Amy Chu. Yeah. That's I it. wonder how much of this is like a response to convergence, you know, and the the way the creative teams for that were handled. That's that's an interesting thought. Yeah, absolutely. Because it kind of, I mean, some of them are, you know, Lane on, Wayne on Swamp Thing, Wolfman on Titans, which, you know, Wolfman's returned to Titans many other times outside of just, you know, Convergence. But yeah, um, I wonder how much of that influenced this decision. And, and you know what else? I, I'm going to kind of piggyback on something Brian said at the start of the podcast, which is that if these if the announcements at San Diego Comic-Con all were for some different faction of DC fan, there is there are DC Comics fans that want to see these creators writing books. It may not be us, but they exist out there, and I know this because I got into a fight on a forum a couple days ago over J.M. DeMatteis' uh, Phantom Stranger run from the New 52. Somebody <laughs> defended that garbage? Someone was defending it to the death. And I swear to God, this is, this is true. And I, and I could not see eye to eye with this person, but you know what? There are people that want to see these classic creators on new books, and God bless them. That's fine. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Purely anecdotal, but I promise they're out there. I agree with that. And I also think that um, this is a better solution than launching these eight books as ongoings. Yes. And I think in terms of... 
Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. I was, I was going to say these are eight books that you would have easily seen at the start of the New Fifty Two, that would have been canceled in eight or twelve issues. And we but, saw that with Swamp Thing and Firestorm. Mm-hmm. Although but Swamp Thing lasted being, longer. Yeah. Yeah. Y- yes, but you saw it with books like it, Frankenstein, you know, etc. But what I was going to say is, would this, I I think for my purposes, but not necessarily for sales purposes, putting these into an anthology of some sort would have been more appealing to me. Mm -hmm. But I'm an anthology guy, and I know the general market are not full of anthology guys. I would love just a nice Dark Horse Present style DC anthology. That's the dream, isn't it? Yes, I would pay. I would pay ten dollars an issue for that. Sure. For for an eighty to one hundred page anthology book. Oh yeah. And did to, you read? Did you read my greatest adventure at the? It was like near the start of the new fifty two. Was that the one that had robot um, man? Robot yeah. Man? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I really liked that. Yeah. Lepresti, by the way, did yeah. some yeah. good work in that. He did. That's true. Um, I also think if you did an anthology like that, then you could convince the people, like, and I'm using this example because it's a clear one, but I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You could convince the uh, Greg Ruckers of the world to come and do a 10-page question story. Sure. Yeah. And that's much easier of a sell to Rucka than it would be hey come back for a mini series or an ongoing you know and this is a great way to try out new talent you know to let a new creator handle a story in an anthology an 8 page or a 10 page or something like that yep um, and they and they could say uh, just like Dark Horse does with new Mike Mignola stories uh, DC can say the next Scott Snyder Batman story is going to start in this anthology. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that gets people reading it. And then in the back door, you slip metamorpho stories and sugar and spike if you feel the need to. So inclined. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would even think you could do it as a digital first thing. Sure. But that's yeah. a whole other story. Well, the, yeah. I mean, that's kind of... In, I mean, they've been doing it with their more major characters. Mm-hmm. But... But, you know, Adventures of Superman and the Sensation yeah. Comics, they were more anthology, you know. Absolutely. One, yeah, two, three-part stories that are really short. So There's an article in me someplace about how DC is the only publisher that really understands digital comics mm-hmm. because they have done... They've, they've used their digital platform for two things. For fans, for casual fans of their big characters... And for fans who come at their characters not from comics. So you have the TV show tie-ins. You have the video game tie-ins. You have the Batman 66 series. You know, you have... It's it's a perfect place to grab the non-traditional comics fan. Mm -hmm. And that's what it should be. Speaking of Superman anthologies, before we get uh, off the miniseries, let's talk about Superman American Alien. This is by Max Landis and... Let me just go through this. these artists that are signed up for this. Jock, Nick Dragata, Tommy Edwards, Joel Jones, Jay Lee, Francis Manipal, Jonathan Case, and Ryan Sook. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> it is. Do we know much about the structure of this series? 
I'm assuming they're going to be one one-off stories that mm-hmm. may have a thin. That's the impression I got from reading about it. That they might have a thin, overarching theme or something. But it seems to me they're going to be like one-off stories, each dealing with a different aspect of Superman's young life. Yeah. Do we know if it's going to be like a full issue by Jock, or is it going to be three or four stories per issue? I don't know. Uh, yeah. How many artists did you just... Because it's a, it's a seven-issue miniseries, correct? Four, five, six, seven. There is uh, eight ca- eight artists listed. Okay, I, th- I thought it was seven. I might be wrong. Um, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know how I feel. I've never been able to get a good feel for Landis as a writer. Not that I don't enjoy his stuff. He's just so well, he's abrasive. Kind of, he's he's kind yeah. of a fanboy. Yeah, yes. Which which is not a bad thing. It's just I don't know if that's the guy I necessarily want writing my book. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the thing is is that he he very much feels Superman is one thing and by god, that's the way he's going to write him and you're going to love it or you're going to hate it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I love it. I do love I do love all those artists. Yeah, it's it's listed here as an, an anthology style miniseries. So maybe it's you know three or four stories per issue. Oh, that would be great. That would be great if there was just like one page, and this is a, this just happens to be a story, and then the next story is ten pages or whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting conceptually. Say what you will about the writer, but like D- DC is showing some flex here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, the last thing we're going to get to before we're going to take a break here is the coming of the Superman by Neil Adams, which is going to be supposedly Neil Adams playing around with the new gods and Kirby characters <laughs> as well as Superman. Um, if this is Batman Odyssey meets. <laughs> fourth world then yes <laughs> and batman honestly is one of the craziest things i've ever read you know <laughs> yes. I, mean, I, I mean i'm a theology major i mean i'm a theology major I, i've read some apocalyptic shit in my day and this is right up there in terms of bonkersness <laughs> um you know so neil adams writing and drawing superman i mean part of me loves the fact that dc lets him do this Mm-hmm. loves the fact that DC lets him do this. The other part of me is thinking, well, do they need to let him do this? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you guys think about Neil Adams in 2015? <laughs> I, uh, I, as Zach said, I, I hope it's just Superman Odyssey, and I hope it's equally as absurd. And if it is, I'm going to love it for... I'm going to love it in the way that some people love going to midnight showings of the room. Okay. And, like, you know, yelling at the screen and stuff like that. Like, that'll be my experience reading the comic, and I'm just fine with that. The real question is, who will topless Clark Kent be telling this story to? 
Because <laughs> topless Bruce Wayne was telling the story to Clark Kent. So... Maybe this is the sequel. This is like the one-up. Oh, okay. So <laughs> at the end of the story, Clark's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what you don't realize is that uh, Clark has been talking the entire time that Bruce Wayne was talking. <laughs> They're just not listening to one another. <laughs> oh, how perfect of a commentary is that on uh, the Superman-Batman relationship, actually? Oh, God. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we, we take a break here, anything else about the miniseries or Batman and Robin Eternal or the original graphic novels? Anything else we want to talk about? Man, I'm so down for more Telos. Really? Oh, no, 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 no. All right, we'll get to, we'll get to that later. All right, Sorry. we'll be back in just a that second. That was a great tease, though. We should just <laughs> well enough alone. Big thanks to Eddie Argos and Art Brute for the use of their track DC Comics and Chocolate Milkshake as our theme music. Make sure to check out at Eddie Argos on Twitter for all sorts of information about the wonderful musician and raconteur that is Mr. Argos. And we are back uh, talking about more of DC's San Diego announcements. Um, one of the more exciting ones for us in this corner of uh, fandom is the return of Milestone to DC as part of the multiverse Earth M. Um, it's going to be bringing back a lot of the classic Milestone creators as well as bringing in some new guns for a mixture of graphic novels, miniseries, and one shots. Um, Zach, you mentioned this before as your favorite announcement, aside from the Morris and stuff. So what is it about the Milestone stuff that it has you so excited? Um, well, well, for one, Milestone as like a, a thing in the DC universe is something I feel like I always was interested in, but always sort of missed out on a little bit, like... Anytime I would see something about milestone characters and I would become like interested in it, it would kind of go away. So like, you know, there was the um, like crossover in Justice League pre New Fifty Two. There was um, a lot of those characters showed up in the Young Justice TV show, um, and then there was the Static Shock series as part of the new 52 and all of those things just kind of happened and then petered out yeah exactly and so it's something that i've been interested in for a long time but haven't really um felt like there was anything kind of an easy jumping on point i guess and i kind of see that as this is hopefully being that um something that gives the line a lot of attention and and multiple jumping on points for people who are interested. Yeah, I think the format is interesting of miniseries one-shots and graphic novels. To me, that, that's great for a few reasons. It gives people limited... Uh, I mean, it gives them multiple opportunities to engage with the properties, but a limited commitment in doing so. You know, if, if, there's, if there's a one-shot and... The creators' names we didn't mention. Supposedly, Jim Lee and Jeff Johns are going to be doing something with the Milestone characters. So those those creators get people to buy books, 
And so if people know they can buy a one-shot by Johns and Lee that will introduce these new characters, that's going to do it more so than necessarily having a a new ongoing series that may or may not succeed. You know what I'm saying? It, it seems like it's a, it's a nice, limited, feasible jumping-on point for people. And Static Shock's a character that I think has more mainstream recognition than people might realize and might actually be a really good tool to bring in some uh, fans of the property who may not be comics fans. Yeah. I mean, that that animated series from the, I guess, was it early 2000s? Yeah. I think it it doesn't get talked about as much, but I feel like for a lot of uh, people who were, like, growing up in that era was just as influential as as some of the other DC animated universe stuff. And I think a lot of people, if they saw that, would would be interested in checking it out. We were talking before about DC Digital and how DC Digital's done a good job of bringing in fans from... fans of characters that aren't necessarily comics readers. And I feel like Static Shock is a perfect example of a character that probably has a fan base that hasn't ever bought a comic. Because of the animated series. Vince, anything to add about this announcement? Um, yeah, not really. I think you guys covered it. Although, um, I, I, I do just want to reiterate how good it is to see that. Because um, for a while there, I guess we weren't really sure about the right status to the Milestone characters, right? I mean, like... like yeah, nobody was sure if they were still under DC control or not. Yeah, Static was going to be in 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 Justice League and United until he wasn't, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> which now then, makes me wonder if if they had just maybe jumped the gun a little bit, like they they knew. And, yeah, yeah. So so it's obvious there's there's still they still have the rights in some capacity, but they wanted to go about it some other way, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm just glad that that we're going to be getting more milestone comics, um, and from a lot of the original creators too. Um, I think it's good for the industry. I think it's good for uh, the diversity of DC's line, and I hope people support it. I hope it's good. I hope it ends up being. Um, I hope I hope it ends up making good on how fondly we all think about the milestone properties to begin with and i think also it's a um it's a really nice sign that dc's talk about diversity isn't just lip service yeah yeah i think so Uh, although the work is not not done by any means absolutely not but you know you you hear i mean i'm just thinking of uh, and again not not to be the shit on marvel podcast but i'm thinking (laughs) about sort of the hip-hop variants a yeah. discussion that recently happened, and Marvel's opinion of like, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> and it just seems like DC is at least attempting to address that. Whether the work is is worthwhile or the work is representative of a truly diverse standpoint, that remains to be seen. Nor does this mean that DC is done doing its work, diversifying its creator base. But it is a nice step in that direction, for sure. Uh, so that brings us to the tie-ins or uh, tie-ins spin-offs, I guess, from Convergence that were also announced at San Diego. There were three books announced. 
Uh, I talked before about Titans Hunt by Dan Abnett and Paolo Sequeira. We also have Superman Lois and Clark by Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks. And Telos by Jeff King and Carlos Pagalon. Or Pagalion. I, I can always butcher that name. That's a, that's a promise to you listeners. I will always butcher that name. So, um, I already said that I'm super excited about Titans Hunt. But, uh, Vince, we were talking before, you talked about how this was something that you were excited about just almost regardless of the books announced. Do you, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm more thrilled that we have, the, at the concept of having books like this, than I am thrilled about the books themselves. Um, I, get, I mean, you all, know, you all know how I feel about getting Jurgens uh, <laughs> all the time. Um, uh, and and also, um, as as Zach sarcastically noted earlier, uh, I don't think anyone i i i challenged i challenged i challenged DC over Twitter when San Diego Comic Con was happening to bring one fan to the front of the stage that says that will admit that they want a book about Telos <laughs> because I can't imagine that there's anyone out there that does. Um, but maybe that's just me being flipped. Um, but the, the, the fact remains that this is kind of building upon what the three of us have debated on this show before in earlier episodes about whether we were going to see anything from Convergence or the multiverse being reflected in actual incontinuity books going forward, or maybe not in continuity, but but as part of DC's uh, main lo- publishing line. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I think regardless <clears throat> of whether we're interested in these specific books or not, uh, the fact that they exist proves that at least in some form, whether they, you know, it remains to be seen where DC is going to pick their spots. I mean, it's very it's very clear that here they're picking the spot where Superman and Lois are in a relationship, right? Or they're picking the spot where Teen Titans kind of got clustered up, you know, between then and now. And, uh, you know, it might not cover the... the width and breadth of the the things that were from pre-Flashpoint that we want to see, but just knowing that they're willing to go to these spots makes me think that there might be more coming down the road, you know, if these are successful, or if there's some other era that is particularly successful, uh, they might give some creator a shot on it, you know, Mm -hmm. They they might give a creator a shot on a Steph Brown Batgirl book from pre-Flashpoint. I doubt it, but but just knowing that it's a possibility that a book like this can exist is kind of heartwarming to me. Can I uh, can I pose a question to you guys? Because sure. I'm pretty sure that by the end of Convergence, all of us were bordering on burnout. Um, at the end of Convergence, this iteration of Superman and Lois, they were part of the envoy that went to stop... Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? Yes. Okay, so that because my question was that this book, the Superman book, takes place not on uh, 
the pre-Flashpoint Earth, but a different Earth. Mm-hmm. And so my question was, well, does that mean that the pre-Flashpoint Earth is gone? But if if it's that he was leaving that Earth to go to go fight the good fight, well, then it's probably not gone. It's just that he can't find his way back there. Because when I first read the solicit, I had forgotten about that little business there, and I thought, well, they're bringing back these characters, but at the expense of that entire world. I don't think that's the case anymore, and I think Vince is right on. I think that there is opportunity here for different characters, different eras, to work in their own books. And I also like, like the reason Titans Hunt is so exciting to me, besides just being, you know, a walking boner for Teen Titans, is the just idea of this is a New 52 character that is having visions of the pre-New 52 world. And so we are having some sort of connection of the, quote, real world and what came in the past. And I even if that is a tenuous connection that doesn't really get... A, doesn't get talked about much. Just the fact that they're willing to admit that this all is part of the same soup somehow is very satisfying to me. Mm, soup. DC soup. <laughs> no, I'm... I'm... I don't know. These got announced and I noticed them and then I kind of forgot about them. But bringing them back up, I'm actually... I'm fairly... I don't know if optimistic's the right word, but I am... A little excited to see what they are like, you know. Well, you loved the conversion Superman book. Right? I, I really did. I, I liked it a lot. I like Lee Weeks a lot, and I I actually felt like that two parter was some of Jurgen's best work in a while. Um, so yeah, I and you know I really like that uh, the dynamic of the the pre New Fifty Two um, Clark and Lois and. This um, the the vibe with like their son. It kind of reminds me a little bit of. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Jupiter's Legacy. A little bit the ah. like later issues, you know, where they it fast forwarded a little bit, and there was the the son. Um, I get vibes from that. I don't expect it to be like that at all, but that's what it makes me think of. Um, and yeah, I just you know, I I enjoyed Convergence. For you know, uh, more than I expected to, and this, and in even the Telos one, I'm I'm a little excited to see what happens next. Can I can I be the 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 the, the cynic here for one second? Yeah. Is it just me, or is this essentially giving Dan Jurgens opportunity to write Superman Beyond? Like it's it's the same thing yeah. as his Batman Beyond book. It's just a it's just a Superman. You know, I hadn't thought about that at out all. Of, but. Out of time, being yeah. darker than it needs to be, and uh, being saved by its artwork. I hope I'm wrong. I really do because Dan Jurgens at one point made comics that I loved, mm-hmm. and I hope he can get back to that. But I, his New Fifty Two stuff has just been so so subpar for me. Yeah, I don't know, and I, maybe. I, I will be interested to see if the the Superman, at least for me, if the Superman two parter was just a a fluke, or you know maybe he does have interesting things to say about Superman. Like I think he still has interesting things to say about um, other characters that he's attached to, like Booster. Um, you know, I still I think I think there are characters he still does enjoyable work on. 
and and I'm hoping that Superman is one of them. Fair enough. Uh, Vince, anything to add before we move off this topic? No. Okay. Uh, our final topic of the night is going to be... Um, so San Diego was also the first time that we had seen any real images uh, outside of the original teaser for uh, either Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, or Suicide Squad. Um, it also brought around the, annou- the announcement that the Green Lantern film would be a Green Lantern core film. And uh, that Jeff Johns would be presumably co-writing a solo Batman film with Ben Affleck to film sometime after Justice League. So um, I know that none of us here are the biggest uh, Man of Steel fans, but but I think all of us can agree that there, there are parts of that film that work and parts that don't. And I think right. all of us have sort of varying levels of interest in the Marvel cinematic, sorry, in the DC cinematic universe, and specifically how it's going to differ from the Marvel cinematic universe. So, mm-hmm. um, I guess let's just take a general temperature of of the DC cinematic universe right now. How do we feel about all of this? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I I'll say this. After the first Batman versus Superman teaser, I was about as out as I could be. Like I I just was not excited at all. I you know, it just it was it just was. Um <laughs> and this the second trailer are, are you talking about Do you bleed? Yes, do you bleed? Okay. All right. Do you bleed? You will. <laughs> yes, that. That, uh, but after this one, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, really, if I don't, if you even want to call it that, there are, there are things in that trailer that I feel like we don't have a a good grasp for yet. We don't have the context for it, mm-hmm. and you could take it one way or the other. Like um, like this the scene with the Joker uh, with the the Robin suit. Or the scene, the the scenes with the um, the Batman, not the Batman, the Superman branded soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, especially that uh, there's this yeah. one, the what one scene that? in the trailer that fascinated. Like, I'm what is this? Because it almost seems kind of like a like Elseworld future type thing where you know Superman is a dictator and he has these these soldiers and Superman. I mean, Batman is is snapping their necks and wearing a trench coat um, because it seems like something so crazy that this, this can't be really happening. Um, so I, you know, it's, I'm, I can't even, I don't even know what I'm watching, so it's really hard to judge, <laughs> but I am at least interested again. There were two bits in the, in the Dawn of Justice trailer, the second one, that piqued my interest. I'm not saying they necessarily sold me, but they piqued my interest. The first was um, the image of Bruce Wayne running into the rubble that was caused by the end of Man of Steel. To me, that was a great character moment. It was like, okay, that that is something that Bruce Wayne that we know and love would do, and I like that. The other was, I I think I said this to, to one of you guys, maybe I said it to somebody else, was that I really don't know if the red capes are coming is the best or worst part of that trailer. Yeah. That, like, context independent, it's hard to tell 
but that exactly. could be the best or worst part of that trailer. Um, I just, to me, it just seems so. I mean, look, let's let's back up and get a little bit real here. I don't think that there has been a movie since Superman the movie, the first Superman the movie, that really got the DC universe feel down. No. But there have been so few yeah. attempts, really. I mean, aside from Batman and Superman movies. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think that any of the Batman films even no. came close to, to 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 representing what DC Comics feel like. And I was I was cautiously optimistic with Man of Steel because of its proximity to the New Fifty Two. That okay, they're going to at least try and match tone to the New Fifty Two, and they didn't really do that. And look, I'm not, I'm not so naive as to think that the only way to make a good comic book movie is to make a movie that looks like a comic book. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but this trailer just seemed to be so tone deaf as to what I love about both Batman and Superman. That I mean, I will go see it opening night. I will be hoping to be proven wrong. Now, there were parts of Man of Steel that I thought were breathtaking. And were really, oh, yeah. really great. There's also parts of Man of Steel that make me want to lie in traffic. Like just, <laughs> they're just really, really bad. And I saw some of those bad moments reflected in the trailer. Like Maquette being like, you don't owe the world shit, dude. Do what you do. Like, what? that, that just seemed we... like a... Yeah. The kids we... in these movies yeah. are... Yes. <laughs> Can we talk about this? What is their obsession with having his parents... Tell him to not give a shit about. Pe- I don't. I don't understand where that's coming from. Who decided that, and why? Yeah. That's think... my. That's my single greatest complaint about Man of Steel. Actually, you have Kevin fucking Costner, <laughs> and you make his character a total like cold-hearted buffoon whose motivation doesn't make any sense to me. And yet you have that scene, to me the most effective scene of the movie, the the you are my son moment when he grabs yes. Clark. Like that I, I could cry thinking about that right now. It's a beautiful that's, moment. Yes. And like that's so pure. against everything else in the movie. <laughs> that's like pure acting power from <laughs> From Costner. From Costner yeah. in that moment. You know, it's just the character is written so wrong headed. And I don't get where that comes from. I've never seen an interpretation like that. And if they're just trying to be different, it doesn't. It doesn't work for me. It's yeah. I don't know. I, when I watch the second trailer, I look at it. I find myself looking at it like I find myself explaining away the things I don't understand or that don't congrue with my viewpoint as I just don't really understand it yet. And I know that once I see the film, there will be maybe not every single case, but there will be times when it's just like, no, they just missed. (laughs) But without, you know, I, I saw people talking and it may have been like in, in one of the multiversity threads, like Snyder has this penchant for making really good trailers Watchmen or trailer. not so great movies. That Watchmen trailer is one of the best trailers ever made. I'm yes, not being the hyperbolic. First, the Man of Steel trailer was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
I've, it's been interesting that I, I haven't necessarily felt that way about either of the uh, Dawn of Justice trailers. I've not thought that either of them was spectacular or breathtaking in any way. Um, and so I wonder if I wonder what that means for the movie. <laughs> Have I told you guys my, my grand Zack Snyder theory? Maybe. No. I don't know. Like, Alright, so he makes Watchmen which is as literal an interpretation of a comic book as ever been put on screen. Mm-hmm. That flops. Then he makes Sucker Punch as visually re- representative of a comic book as a film that's ever been on screen, and that flops. And so he doesn't, he doesn't realize that he shouldn't do superhero films, comic films. He just does them not like comics now. <laughs> and that's learning all the wrong lessons from the movies that he's made in the past. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and now, you know, the other thing here is that I'm really wondering at this point if 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 Dawn of Justice flops, or not even flops, if it's just a critical disaster. Yeah, it's not going to flop. It's not going to flop, no. But if it's Superman Returns, let's put it that way, where it, it makes a, a good amount of money, but no one's really on fire about it. Can we... Uh, I just want to interject. Sure. Yeah. Superman Returns has a higher Metacritic score than Man of Steel does. And I would I would vouch for that any day. Yeah. That, that's a whole other conversation, though. Okay. <laughs> to, to, to me, Man of Steel got the heart totally right. Sorry. Um, Superman Returns got the heart of Superman totally right, but mm-hmm. couldn't figure out how to make that char- the heart of that character interesting. Mm-hmm. Whereas Man of Steel gets the heart totally wrong, but makes a flawed version interesting. That's okay. the difference there. But... Anyway, um, so like because this movie is seemingly going to introduce fifteen fucking sequels in one fell swoop, if that movie is a disaster, are they just gonna are they gonna fold the tent up and say we're going home, or are they so pot committed here that they're gonna have to go through with these other movies? They're committed. They've got yeah. a slate of like ten movies. That they showed us all in one weekend. I mean, Wonder Woman's supposed to start shooting in a few months. Yeah. yeah. I think they're going to have to do Wonder Woman. And they're maybe going to have to do Justice League. Well, I don't... that's a lot to add. I mean, that's Justice League, you know? I mean... But here's the thing. If you're doing, if you're doing Justice League, you're all in. Well, I don't know about that. Because you know, the, the Flash movie was supposed to be done by the Lego movie Clone High guys, right? Right. And, and they have now signed on to do the the Han Solo movie. To me, they're probably not touching the Flash. I also think that touching the Flash at this point is a fool's errand because the Flash TV show is all anybody wants to see with the Flash. But that's a whole other story. But I could see if if they if they if they can't fucking sell a Batman versus Superman movie, then how are they going to sell a cyborg movie? Like, and I think at a certain point you're just going to see all these spinoffs start to fall away, which to me is actually the preferable option than to this movie being bad. But because they've already cast their die, they just keep going with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Marvel just sold a fucking Ant-Man movie. Yeah. You know, something else that really struck me that I that I heard someone say, and again, I think it was someone from Multiversity, they like brought up the differences or the main difference between the like Marvel movies and the DC movies, specifically like Snyder's vision is like and I don't know if you guys would necessarily agree with this, but I 
the Marvel movies don't lack a like distinctive style. You know, they are, in my opinion, they're kind of the generic genre movies that are stand on the strength of the casts. Yeah, and, I and, agree with and, that. Absolutely. The Whereas yeah. the DC movies under Snyder have a very clear. Um, yes, yes, but just fall flat in terms of of, of character. A lot, not all the time, but some a good percentage of the time, and you know, I on one hand, like I appreciate that that there is that like difference between the two, um, but I just wonder how long that can remain viable, and I wonder if we'll see like a more of a um, homogenation when we get into the non Snyder films. Yeah, I that, yeah. I mean, no. Nobody's arguing that that Zack Snyder's not a great visual director. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why you know when people flip their lid over these trailers, um, it's totally understandable. And then the movie that you get doesn't 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 reflect that. Uh, whereas Marvel trailers, you know, they always seem to, Marvel trailers don't, don't seem to set the world on fire, do they? I mean, no, I thought the Ant-Man trailer was shit and I loved Ant-Man. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, yeah, I mean, it's as, it's as simple as DC putting their, or Warner's just putting their stock in the wrong, I don't know. Yeah, they've. They've hitched themselves to the to the wrong horse, I think, and and the the problem with waiting to see what happens after after Snyder is done with the characters is that we've already we're already going to have had you know how many years of that specific vision mm-hmm. and nothing else. Well, so so is that going? I mean, maybe I this is a good time to like transition into like what do you guys think the um Affleck Johns helmed Batman movie would look like I can't even imagine it I mean cuz here's my thing so Affleck has proven himself to be a capable director yeah um he's he's only really done little genre movies right there's been nothing that's been too big of a of a stage here you know he's done mm-hmm. a he- Argo is essentially a heist movie right Mm-hmm. Uh, as is the town, um, you know, Gone Baby Gone is wh- whatever. Uh, I don't know how he would do with 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 a character that that that's this defined already. Like you know, I, I think part of what makes doing a Batman movie hard is my mom knows Batman. My mom knows Batman's origin story. My mom has never bought a comic book in her life that wasn't for me, and so. Everybody comes into it with these expectations, and I think for for a director like Affleck, who's been able to make these small, very effective, but 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 small and handcrafted movies, I don't know if you can make a small handcrafted Batman movie, and I especially don't know if you can make a small handcrafted Batman movie that spins out of Dawn of Justice, when he has fucking laser eyes and no neck, you know? Yeah. 
I think if you did, though, that would be incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I don't know. And then you know, well, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna save that. Let's let's finish talking about Batman. Uh, Zach, what do you think that would look like? I mean, you know, I, I think I would love to have it, like you said, a small handcrafted Batman film. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I can't even imagine what a what a Ben Affleck Jeff Johns collaboration would look like <laughs> because. And don't get me like I love Jeff John's comics, and I think he has done like really interesting stuff on television as well, and the things that he's been involved in. But to see him handle tackle a feature film with a actor director is just the most mind boggling concept. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I just don't even know how to even think about that because he's someone who I see Affleck as someone who's you know like really grounded and like down to earth in terms of like his his like writing and his those sensibilities whereas like Jeff Johns is going to bring the big comic book sensibility and like the grandiose mythology and those two things just don't really seem to go together do you want to hear the really sad Answer I just thought of for this, Kevin for Smith. <laughs> no, Ke- Kevin Smith is the X factor here. Um, <laughs> but no, that it's going to look like Batman Earth One. Well, yeah. and he, I mean, that obviously, yeah, that definitely like comes to mind. And you know, I I haven't read the second volume. I haven't read either volumes. I'm talking up my ass okay. here. I like. I mean, the first <laughs> volume was it. I mean, it wasn't groundbreaking or anything. A lot of it wrote on Gary Frank. Um, but it was interesting, and it definitely already kind of aligns with what they're doing with thing, with or what they seem to be doing with characters like Alfred. Alfred already seems more in line with the Earth One Alfred than than any other um, one that we've seen. Um, but th- but then also like this this Batman's older and not just starting out. So and you know who knows what kind of movie it would even be. Is it going to be set? At, you know, what point in the history is it set? What are they even trying to accomplish with a solo Batman movie at this point? I heard a really cynical take on this recently, which was that the the Batman Affleck movie is just giving... Um, that, that the reason they made Affleck Batman older and the reason they're giving Affleck this Batman movie is to let him kill Bruce Wayne on screen. <laughs> and let him hey. just... And that let them start a new Batman on screen, whether hey, it's Dick Grayson or whoever. I would love that, honestly. That I think would be that would more be, interesting than yeah. anything. I've... That would be incredible. And if they had the balls to do that, I would be all in. Depending, you know, like, no, not even, no qualifiers. I don't care who they cast as, <laughs> who, who becomes Batman, even if there is a Batman. If they did that, I would be all in. Because to me, if you're introducing an older Batman, then you have to play with his mortality. Yeah. I like it. If that doesn't happen now, I'm... Whatever. <laughs> uh, Vince, anything to add before I shift us to Suicide Squad? Um, well, let, let's talk about the one part of the trailer we didn't really talk about, which is Wonder Woman. Because right. that, that was like the one part of the trailer that I really got jazzed about seeing. 
I mean, people have said things about her, like, physical build and how, like, she's not Amazonian enough or whatever, which is fine, but I've never been one to be, like, so literal about a character's appearance um, in a in a, a live-action movie, you know? You're mm-hmm. only going to get so so accurate. And uh, I I thought she looked good, and I thought it was interesting to see... Having seen Man of Steel and knowing how they approach Superman in a modern world, in a very realistic world, um, and then having seen Batman and, and pretty much knowing how that's going to go, it was interesting to th- throw Wonder Woman into the mix. Um, just just seeing her a part, as a part of that was... Um, like I said, it was the only thing about the yeah. trailer that really made me stand up and pay any attention. Yeah, you you make me feel bad because I I've spent all this time talking about that other stuff, and that was, I think, the most interesting part of the trailer because it was the thing that we haven't seen before. Her clapping um, her wrists together and making the lightning. Yeah. Well, just just her being on screen, you know, like mm-hmm. just seeing the character, and you know, I honestly that scene. I was less impressed by that scene than like seeing her character, like her civilian character interact with in some of the other scenes. Sure. Um, sure. Do you guys think they're going to go the, uh, the, the Wonder Woman, Batman relationship that the, the animated universe kind of did? Well, they just cast Steve Trevor yesterday. Yeah, you're yeah, right. that's true. I yeah, I didn't think of that. Well, that's a love triangle, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, team, team Trevor, team <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> it, it would certainly be interesting to me. Batman and Wonder Woman romantically is far more interesting than Superman and Wonder Woman romantically. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. definitely. Um, but you know, my my concern about Wonder Woman is just that. I told, okay, so we all. Are none of us are sold on the fact that they can do a successful Batman in this movie? We're not we're not totally sold they can do a successful Superman in this movie. I'm not entirely sold that DC can do a successful Wonder Woman comic, let alone a Wonder <laughs> Woman film. Well, well, they did they did once. They, they did once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that one time. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, a few times. It's a character that is really hard to get right, and mm-hmm. I just. And to me, this seems like, you know, if Zack fucking Snyder can get Wonder Woman right, and and most writers that have ever touched the character can't, what does that say about, about the way DC handles the character month to month? So, I am not entirely sold on Wonder Woman in this film, because I just feel like you don't see a lot of great... Uh, I don't see a lot of great options sure, coming yeah. out of this. Yeah, to be sure. Like, I'm merely commenting on the material that we have in front of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, the, you, you were talking earlier about how you uh, you thought that the Bruce Wayne running into the destruction was a good character moment. Mm-hmm. I'm still not even convinced that it's not going to be like a, a Jonathan Kent moment where he was running in there to get his watch or something and he's going to be upset that a kid like impeded him from getting his gold watch or something <laughs> ridiculous like that, like just completely missing the point, you know, like, like that's how little I trust the actual movie that's, that's underneath all these 
iconic looking images, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so your point on Wonder Woman is completely fair. I'm just saying everything we've seen so far seems right to me. And when you think about the alternative and how often they screw up, like this, the characters that should be incredibly simple, you know. I'm, I mean, did you see the the, out, the Superman costume that they were going to have Nick Cage in? Yeah. Yeah. Did you see I, the Superman. time that they were going to have Nick Cage be Superman? <laughs> have you guys watched that documentary yet? No. No, I, no, no. I, I have seen it. Um, I backed the Kickstarter. Okay. And it's interesting. So you say, have you seen the costume they're going to have Nick Cage in? But have you guys seen what the final costume looked like? Yes, yeah. Was it the, the light-up one? No, or? no. Okay. The one that looks like every other Superman costume ever, just slightly more metallically sheened. Yeah. Like, they eventually... All these ideas were crazy in the start, but eventually it came down to, like, they realized, like, oh, no, we have to do a Superman costume that looks like Superman. Because why would you do a Superman movie that didn't have that? And, right. you know... But have you? But you've heard and read some of the other things that, like made it into these scripts, right? You know? Oh, like, yeah. Like, I'm just I'm just glad that we get a Wonder Woman that looks like Wonder Woman. That's fair. You know? I mean... It, she does and, look... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all, like, oh, now I'm happy. You know? I'm just saying, in this trailer, what I've seen in this trailer makes me happy. And that's enough for now. You know? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think if you have to wish on something in that trailer, you're wishing on Wonder Woman. Yes. All, like, nine frames of her. <laughs> Admittedly, yes. Yeah. Um, so let's talk Suicide Squad before we oh. wrap up tonight. Um, this is a movie that I feel like had potential because I thought when it was announced that DC was going to take this in a low-budget, almost like, I don't want to say a B-movie, I don't mean that way, but just, you know, to do it on the budget of a film like Drive, where, where, you know, there's still some action, but it's not this gigantic explosions and whatever thing, and the cast has ballooned out of control, and the trailer was full of character reveals that nobody knows who the character you're revealing is. Like that was that was my biggest takeaway. It was like, oh, I know that's Killer Croc, but does anybody that's watching this know that's Killer Croc? No. So then why are you presenting this as if you're showing me Superman or Batman? Like I don't I don't know who the fuck these people are. I, I could just see fans in theaters not knowing who ninety percent of those people are. And it just has turned into this movie that it, to me, this looks like the worst. This is like uh, the fucking, um, uh, I don't know what's his name, Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie, like grown up 25 years later. I, I will say that I have heard, like, in. My, like, circle of, like, real-life interactions, not internet interactions. Wait, you have real-life interactions? Yeah. How can I get some of those? You You work in school. That's all all I got. (laughs) Um, I've heard more people, like, show interest in that trailer than I would have ever expected. Really? Yes. Like, 
you know, people in the mainstream, like non comic book, just just normal movie going folk, eat that up. Is it just Harley Quinn? It's the whole thing. It's it's Harley Quinn. It's Jared Leto Joker. It's Will Smith. It's just like I'm I don't back, I don't know. I'm backing you up on that, Zach. I've heard that too. Really? And, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and it's it's rabid. I mean, it's going to be, like, guys like us are going to hate it, <laughs> and but there are going to be droves of people going to see. I mean, it's the, that trailer's got more views than the Batman vs. Superman trailer. No, you no know? way. Really? Yeah. It did at one point. They yeah, were both in, like, the millions, you know, but, like... It's- big i mean it's i don't it's kind of just this weird i think it's just hitting at the perfect time where like people you know people are still fascinated with the the heath ledger joker and jared leto is just this weird guy who does weird things and is just (laughs) enigmatic and cool and the fact that he's doing joker is cool and you know harley quinn is in this weird you know I might have thought at one time that it was just in a comic book thing. You know, she's in the comic book zeitgeist, but I think it's more than that. Uh, And, you know, and then Will Smith, everybody's just always going to have a weird fascination with Will Smith, like, no matter what. Um, That line, though, were some sort of suicide suicide squad. squad. So that's it now? I'm hoping that that's not, I'm hoping that that scene was just just shot for the trailer. (laughs) That's my hope. That was just one of those scenes that made it into the trailer and won't actually have to be in the film, please. Because we're going to see a movie called Suicide Squad. Doesn't actually have to be in the movie. Brian, can you isolate my vocal for like some sort of drop like that we play at the beginning of every show? Sure. That's we just some kind of DC three. <laughs> we just <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna create a sick hip hop beat underneath that, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, no, no, I think I think Zach's right on. I think it's gonna be crazy, and after it's over, David Ayer's gonna be able to make like whatever kind of little movie he wants, which is great because I think he's a talented director. But uh, I mean, I'm I'm getting strapped in for like a crazy train of hype. And 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 much more Joker and Harley Quinn to follow. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they got their own movie. Oh, oh yeah. absolutely! Well, yeah. I, for sure, I expect like Harley Quinn to play a huge role in the solo Batman movie. That's my prediction. Yeah, but again, like, like if okay, so th- th- this is where I tend to get angry now. So, <laughs> like if. If you're bringing on Ben Affleck, an Academy Award-nominated director, to helm your Batman movie, and then you're going to make him deal with a character that somehow in prison has, like, long long swaths of fabric to let her do weird pink-on-the-Grammys uh, <laughs> dance moves from her cell, like... How do you reconcile those two visions? Just wait. Maybe, maybe you don't. Just wait. Maybe you, I don't know. Maybe you don't have to. Maybe, maybe, maybe the DC movie continuity is just as fluid as the comics are right now. 
maybe you can just go do what you want. But didn't you read Zack Snyder's quote from the from yesterday? No, I didn't. Oh, what did you on. say? Hang on, I'm gonna pull it up. I put it in the rundown this morning, and um, I could, you can like hear the condescension drip off of my words. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. As I said, Zack Snyder has some remarkably smug words about the DC Cinematic Universe. Okay, so let me just pull up the exact quote here. I'm going to read it in what I picture as a douchebag voice. So, uh, what we're doing is ground up. It sounds like Dan Didio. I was going to say it in my own voice. I was, my voice was too similar to Dan Didio. Um What we're doing is ground up all the way. It's one giant story. The first thing we had was the Justice League concept. The other movies, in a way, have to support that. That is our Wonder Woman, our Aquaman. They have their own creative concepts that support them, but they do serve Justice League in the coming together of those heroes. It gets worse. He says, I want all the other directors of the other films to be able to stretch their legs and do what they want, but at the same time, there's a big interconnected universe. And here comes the big jerk-off motion. I have given everyone amazing access to our story, to me, and what we are doing. All the films have like-minded conceptual jumping-on points. Uh, Like, that's the worst statement I can imagine reading about these movies. When we get our Justice League 4 that is um, evil Superman and Harley Quinn and whoever is Batman after Ben Affleck's character dies, um, you know, I think I think the DC movies will be in an interesting place. So I'm just going to write it out. But doesn't that, isn't that a very tone-deaf and self-serving statement? Would you expect anything less? I guess not, but I mean... See, here's the thing, okay, so remember back when Zack Snyder was just the guy who did Dawn of the Dead and how he took a beloved movie, updated it, and didn't manage to piss anybody off in the process? Yeah, but you know what, Brian, and I haven't done this, but have you gone back and watched it. Oh, of recently? course not. No. Okay. <laughs> because if you did and I'm I'm this is purely um this is this is purely uh uh you know pulling something out of my ass. But I would not be surprised if you went back and watched it and felt like oh, he's been the same guy all along and probably he was just, he probably. Was just nobody back then. I mean, I don't know. I could be totally wrong. No, I mean, I I, I think you're probably spot on with that. Unfortunately, um, I I have a theory okay. that that if Dawn of Justice can do well, and that is like make make the money that they wanted to make and not be like a six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, then this. Everything else is just going to only be good for DC um, because, you know, we might not enjoy it, but it's going to put them more in the public consciousness. Whereas right now, you know, Marvel has like the monopoly and I think we've seen that the movies don't really affect the comics that much um, as, as far as story goes. Um, 
I, I don't know. Like, if, if Suicide Squad is a huge success, then good on them, you know? I I don't know. I mean, you're right. You know, I, I, I do think that ultimately DC films doing well is good for DC Comics. Yeah. In almost every way. I don't know if I'll say every way. Almost yeah. every way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but see, here's the thing. I just, I feel like in some ways the worst thing that ever happened to DC's movies is Christopher Nolan. Because nothing is ever going to be as successful on a commercial or critical level as The Dark Knight was. That's right. probably true. And so they're, they're 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 chasing that ghost the whole time. They're trying to find the next, and that's why you see. I mean, is is Jared Leto's Joker? Could it be any more of a reaction to Heath Ledger's Joker? It's just taking all of that yeah. up to like the ugly level, you know. And I, I feel like that's just that that's going to curse them. And that's why I wish they would leave Batman alone for a while and let another character thrive because there hasn't been a Superman vision in 30 years that has been all that successful. There's yeah. never been a Wonder Woman. The Green Lantern film flopped, you know. It can never hey, that's that's rock bottom. If it never it can never be that bad again, right? We'll never get another <laughs> Green Lantern, right? <laughs> I I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's a very, very real scenario where Dawn of Justice is worse than Green, Green Lantern. I, it can't be. It literally cannot be. I, I agree with Zach, but I, I, I understand I get where you're the sentiment. From. I do too, I, but it literally can't be as okay. bad as Green Lantern. Let me rephrase this. There's a way that Dawn of Justice is a more enjoyable but more harmful film than Green Lantern. That is probably true. Yes, because Green Lantern didn't really harm anything. They threw that entire plan out. You know? Yeah. It harmed the, it harmed the idea that Green Lantern was going to be the start of something going forward, mm-hmm. but it turned out they didn't really need it to be that. You know? Yeah. I still, you know, I still think that you talk about following the Nolan movies. Mm-hmm. I, you know, was never totally against the idea of doing a soft reboot, carrying over, you know, I, and who knows if he would even be interested in this, but like, you know, carrying over the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character into this universe. Oh yeah. I'd have been fine with that. Not necessarily referencing, you know, cause I know the main argument was the tonal disparity, I guess, which I don't even necessarily see that as being that big of an issue, but you know, you, you don't even have to necessarily reference the Nolan verse necessarily in so much as you just have this character that people will recognize and you already have some sense of a foundation. And I think that would have been a better place to start than rebooting Batman completely and doing the same thing that we're kind of seeing with Spider-Man where every, you know, five to ten years you 
get to see Uncle Ben die again. <laughs> I will just put this out there. As of Captain America Civil War, which will be out by this point next year, mm-hmm. there will have been as many film Spider-Men in 15 years as there were film Superman in 40 years. <laughs> That's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess to wrap up this part of the conversation, I guess, um, are you guys optimistic at all about the DC film verse right now? Uh, you know, if, like I I went to go see Ant-Man the day it opened. Now, part of that was just because I had the day off and I could do that, but it's also, I made it my business to go see that movie the day it opened, and I'm going to make it my business to go see Donald Justice the day it opens, Mm -hmm. but... There's a difference between the way I watch Dawn of Justice and the way I watch Ant-Man. Is there any way that you feel at the end of Dawn of Justice you'll be more optimistic than not? When when you say there's a difference between the way you watch Ant-Man and the way you watch Dawn of Justice, is it because during Ant-Man you're relaxed, smiling, and laughing, and during Dawn of Justice <laughs> yes. you're clenching you're your clenched. butthole? Is yes, like... <laughs> yes. I can't imagine there being one moment in Dawn of Justice as satisfying as Baskin Robbins always finds out. Like a small recurring joke in the movie would be much, much better than that entire abomination. But honestly, do you, do you guys see a scenario where you're at the end of that movie, you feel like, yeah, we're in a good place? Okay, I'll, I'll put it like this. I think on Multiversity, I gave Man of Steel like a 6 out of 10 when it came out. Okay. And, I, and I've soured a little bit on it since then, even further, but but I think that's about right. You know, 5, somewhere around there. Um, I like, 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 like you said about how you can see it being more damaging than Green Lantern was, I don't agree, but I can see where you're coming from. I am going to say that I anticipate coming out of Dawn of Justice, not loving it, but I can see it being better than Man of Steel. Because I can see it, and maybe this is this is being a little, I mean, this is despite us, or myself, basically trashing the trailer for the last half hour or whatever, but... Uh, I can see it correcting a lot of the mistakes that were made in Man of Steel reflexively. Does that make sense? Like, it's going to very much be, if the trailers are any indication, it is a movie, I hope it is a movie about the way the world sees Superman, including Batman. And at the end, hopefully we have a very different view of him than we had at the end of Man of Steel. Now, my fear, and it, it, so if, if that is accomplished, if, if that's where the images that we've seen in the trailer lead to, then I, it'll be a, I'll be more optimistic and I'll feel better about it when compared to Man of Steel. On the other hand, I can easily see it being Batman is really cool and he's better than Superman and this is why. You know, despite it having originally been a Superman-centric film. And I feel that would be the Jonathan Kent moment of this upcoming movie where 
you you look like you've got the right idea focusing on how the world sees Superman and then you come to the wrong conclusion. Does that make sense? Yeah. But if they come to the right conclusion on Superman, I'm going to walk out of this movie probably more optimistic than I was coming out of Man of Steel, all things being equal. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Um, you know, my my fear is that if this was a direct sequel to Man of Steel starring Superman and Batman had a role in it, then I agree with everything you're saying. But this is essentially a movie... I mean, think about the things we've seen in the trailer. Okay, we know Batman is the second lead in the movie. We know Wonder Woman's in it. We know Lex Luthor is in it. We know that there's a weird thing seemingly in the desert where Batman wears a trench coat. Okay, um, like... Let's throw that out. I'm going to assume that that was in there by accident. Okay. I, I don't even know... <laughs> Is a part Frank, of a snuff Frank, part of a snuff film that got a one got of Frank, Frank Miller's snuff films that he's been making. <laughs> it's actually Batman Six Sixty Six. Oh, okay. That was, that was Damien. Oh, okay. And cool. um, Doctor Hurt's the villain in this all right. film. If, if you're and, right, then all is forgiven. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, but my fear is just that there's so much stuffed into this that even if they try and address the how the world sees Superman, that's going to be ten minutes of a two-and-a-half-hour movie. That would depress me greatly. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, like, always going to be the eternal optimist about these things. And, Maybe like... To be that. I, I, like, I didn't come out... When I came out of Man of Steel, I wasn't that low on it. My biggest problem with that film was the destruction porn ending. Like, that, you know... That was my biggest gripe coming out of it. Um, and the, so It's interesting that neither of you had as much of a problem with the neck snapping. Well, That's, I, really, I you know, wrap that into the whole thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean... In that universe, it didn't bother me. Okay, fair enough. Because I, I felt like that was a deliberate choice... And it, while it didn't necessarily like fit my view of Superman, it fit a view of Superman, and I can concede that it's one that's more popular with the mainstream. So whatever. Um, and it, it wasn't one without precedent either. Um, so that's true. But 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 I think a lot of it. This is this is maybe not true for all people, but I think my take on it is more subtle than most people's outrage with it because I had more issue with the way that it was depicted among everything else. You had this like m- destruction on a massive scale and then then you had this moment between these two beings that essentially caused all this destruction and it's it's a very brute force close up ugly neck snap that makes you feel gross and ugly and if that was the intent like if the in- if the intent was to make me think oh that was that was sick and i don't think it was the right choice necessarily and that was ugly then it totally accomplished that but i don't especially the discussion that that came out with the director and the writer 
after the movie and the controversy started up, hearing them talk about it, I don't think that was the intent. Like that didn't, it doesn't, it felt like they're, they want us to believe that that was the absolute right thing. And that's how it should have gone down. And, and I think they would have been more successful just making the concession that no, maybe this time it was a gross, ugly thing to do. And seeing how they respond to it will be interesting, but I don't, think they've done that yet yeah well i mean they're making like an inherently flawed superman and i you know the 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 conceit of like batman fighting superman i think is a a dumb one to start off with in in the beginning like you know i'm why i don't know i've had a lot of more people than i would expect like bring up the point that like why why is superman fighting batman i I thought they were friends i've heard more like non-comics people say that than i ever would have thought um Mm -hmm. but in this universe like i really do kind of like the idea that bruce wayne has a problem with superman because he sees the aftermath of like the zod fight and sees this like person who you know like the way we kind of see him as like in the wrong you know and if this movie is about like them reconciling that, then that's I think that's good. I think that would be cool. Um, I, if it I was, hope, I hope that is what it's about. You know, and because it, I mean that seems like the logical progression is you, you know, you have the foundation for the kind of Superman that we know through, you know proper character growth Mm -hmm. it's just you have to do it that's why i'm worried about (laughs) yeah the martha kent line well yeah when when she's like you don't know those people a thing no if we're supposed to feel like the ending of man of steel was depressing and ugly maybe this movie is about the world making superman ugly and him having to just be himself Maybe, but I hope... Would that be, like, a great meta-commentary? <laughs> it would be. Like, the, the message that I'm getting is that, like, oh, you don't owe them a thing. You just you just participated in the mass destruction and trashing of the city, and you don't owe them a thing. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not the case, but that's the message I keep getting, like, that, that no one is taking this as seriously as everything else in this universe is taken seriously. Yeah. Like you know only, what I mean? Yeah, I feel like the only time my mom ever told me I didn't owe anybody anything is, like, if I was being picked on by a bully. And she'd be like, it's okay, Brian. You know, you don't, they, you know, you don't owe, you know, leave them alone. You don't owe them anything. Just ignore them. And if that's the conversation that Martha Wayne's having with the most powerful, not Martha Wayne, uh, Martha Kent's having, having with the most powerful person on the planet, there's nothing wrong with that conversation. Yeah, yeah. I don't this know. Is, this is a depressing end to our podcast. Yeah, I just, I just hope that the movie ends with Superman flying and like on each arm he's holding hands with. On one side he has Wonder Woman, and the other side he has Batman, and they're just flying together. <laughs> and that's how the movie ends. And and Ben Affleck recites that poem from Superman the movie. 
<laughs> when Lois Lane is flying. Yes. 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 And then Can you fly? <laughs> <laughs> so Teach <high>. me. <laughs> uh, Do you bleed? <laughs> Well, if folks want to send us their hand-drawn imagery based on that scene, you can send it to all of us on Twitter. Uh, I am at Brian Needs a Nap. I am at VJ underscore O-S-T-R-O-W-S-K-I. And I'll take your Rule 34 of that scene. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm SirFox89. Good night. <laughs> and I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it then? That's it. We're just some kind of DC3. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never got over that sweet, sweet